0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Marano.
1: If
2: you are a new listener to this radio program. First of all, welcome aboard. We appreciate you listening. Uh, There's no need to change the channel. We'll every day hopefully have something interesting and entertaining for you for the next four hours. But you may be unfamiliar with what I have decried before as this program's prime directive. What I try to avoid doing is read too much into polls, too much into opinion polls uh, specifically, and I am so sick of seeing coverage of electoral politics dominated by polls, polls, polls. Oh, the polls say this. The polls say this person's a major candidate. That person's not a major candidate. So let's take the person that the polls say is a major candidate and give them all sorts of free publicity, and let's take the person that the polls say is not a major candidate and ignore them so that nobody knows who they are so they can never move up in these phony polls to begin with. So much of how these polls are concocted has to do with how they uh phrase the uh, the phrase the questions it has to do with the agenda of the people doing the poll the people paying for the poll i am very skeptical of polls in general but especially as it relates to electoral politics well just as on the TV show Star Trek, when they actually did violate the Prime Directive all the time. I mean, I think Captain Kirk on the original series he violated uh, the Prime Directive. Although they they didn't really call it the Prime Directive much back then. They mostly called it General Order One, I believe, if my Star Trek original series knowledge is uh, is accurate. But they violated it every week almost. They would interfere and and do all sorts of things. So we are going to. Once again, violate the internal Other Side of Midnight Prime Directive. Because I found the results of this particular poll very disturbing, but on the other hand, not necessarily surprising. And I want to bring this to your attention. I want to break down for you what it said And then I want to get your take as to why this is the case. And then I want to know, one, if you believe this. And I want to know if you think, as I do, that this is a bad thing. Here's the top line takeaway. And uh, some of you might have seen this in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. But patriotism, religious faith, having children, and other priorities that helped define, really, American values and American national character for generations are now receding in importance to Americans. This is according to a new poll from the Wall Street Journal and NORC. The Normally, I would be very suspect of any poll involving the Wall Street Journal because the Wall Street Journal has a very strong editorial position. And it wouldn't surprise me if they were trying to find polling or fund polling that uh, reinforced whatever their take was on a given issue. But uh, the reason I give this poll a little bit more credibility is this survey conducted with NORC, which is a very credible polling institute at the University of Chicago. They are a nonpartisan research organization and they have done this poll before. They did this poll about 25 years ago, and they treated it and the questioning behind it almost exactly the same way. So at least there's an apples-to-apples comparison of how respondents responded to these questions back in the late 90s and how they're responding now. This poll also found, finds that the country is sharply— divided by political party over social trends such as the push for racial diversity in businesses and the use of gender-neutral pronouns. None of that surprised me. So here was what was interesting. Patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement, in terms of comparing this current poll to the poll back in 1998, all down significantly meaning people who said these values are very important to them. Of all the values, of all the values that the Wall Street Journal um, writes about here, the only one that was up was, what do you think it was? It's one of those things where I don't think you're going to be able to guess, so I'm going to tell you, but once I tell you, it's not going to surprise you either. I don't think it will. It really didn't surprise me. Money. Money. So the percentage of people who say that patriotism is very important to them fell dramatically. The number of people who said, or the percentage of people who said religion was very important to them, fell dramatically. The number of people who said that having children was very important to them fell dramatically. The number of people who said that community involvement was uh, very important to them. This is an interesting one because for a long time it was on the uptick. And it was much higher up until about 2019. And then over the last four years, it has cratered. And yet the percentage of people who say that money is very important to them has gone up steadily and consistently over the last 25 years. So who thinks patriotism is important? Well, I do. But. 38% of respondents said that patriotism was very important to them, and 39% said religion was very important. Now, how much is that down from 1998? That was down sharply from when the Journal first asked that question back in 1998. In 1998, how many people, what percentage of people do you think deemed patriotism to be very important? 70 percent, 70 percent. So in just 25 years, we've gone from a situation where 70 percent of the country, or at least 70 percent of those polled, 70 percent of those polled thought patriotism was a value that was, quote, very important to them. Now, only 38 percent of the country says it's very important to them. And in terms of religion or faith, 62 percent back in 1998, said that was very important to them. And now that has cratered to 39%. I find this pretty alarming. I find it alarming for a few reasons. One, not only because... I'm not trying to reinforce my values on anybody else. You know, you don't want to believe in God, fine. You don't want to uh, be patriotic, uh, fine. You don't want to have children, uh, fine. But you don't want to be involved in your community? Don't be. But... Not only are those values, all four of the ones that I just mentioned, very important to me, but they're values that I think are the bedrocks of a solid societal foundation. Additionally, what I find so alarming about this is we're not talking about comparing what people are saying today to what they were saying back in 1955. No, no. We're not going back to the 50s or even the 60s. We're not going back 50, 60 years. We're just going back to the 1990s. The 1990s feels like yesterday. Uh, I mean, you blink, and it was 25 years ago. Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and uh, that whole thing was going on 1998, pre-9-11, pre-George W. Bush. That was, doesn't it feel like yesterday? To me, it does. And yet, in seemingly the blink of an eye, Patriotism, religion, having children and community involvement are no longer important values to most people. I'm going to give you some other data, which I think is interesting from this poll, but I'd love to know, one, do you believe this? I I do. Two, are you concerned about this as I am? 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 And most important, the most important question I ask on every show, at least once a show, is why? Why have patriotism, religion, having children, and community involvement waned over the course of the last 25 years, whereas the importance of having money has gone up? The share of Americans who say that having children... Involvement in their community and hard work are very important values fell tolerance for others which was deemed very important by 80% of Americans as recently as four years ago has fallen to 58% since then still a majority but by no means a resounding majority as it was four years ago Bill MacInturf, how'd you like to go through life with a name like Bill um uh, you know can I have a Reservation, party of 4, 7 p.m.? Yeah, sure, what's the name? Bill McInturf. How are you going to tell that guy you don't have a table for him? So Bill McInturf is a pollster who worked on a previous Wall Street Journal survey that measured these attitudes along with NBC News. He said that these differences are so dramatic that it paints a new and surprising portrait of a changing America. He surmised that, The answer to my last question as to why was that perhaps the toll of our political division, COVID, and the lowest economic confidence in decades is having a startling effect on our core values. I'll be honest. I think I think he might be right. I think all three of those things did really shake a lot of deeply held American values to the core. A number of events have shaken and in some ways fractured the country since they asked about these these values. The September 11th terrorist attacks, the financial crisis, the subsequent economic downturn, all the division that took place during the administration of Donald Trump. The only priority at all that The Wall Street Journal tested that grew in importance over the past quarter century was money. It was cited as very important by 43% of people in the new survey. That is up from 31% of people in 1998. Aside from money, all age groups, including seniors— so keep that in mind, what I just said. This includes every age group, including senior citizens— so before you come out, uh, before you call in and say, well, the reason they're doing that is because these young people go to college and they get brainwashed and they think the country doesn't matter, church doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is uh, money, do, re, me mula, schmula. Before you say that, these are not respondents that are young. This is every age group, including seniors. They attached Far less importance to these priorities and values than when pollsters asked about them in 1998 and in 2019. Younger Americans, in particular, it's true, do place low importance on these values, many of which were central to the lives of their parents. 23% of adults under the age of 30 said in the new survey that patriotism was very important to them personally compared with uh, 59% of seniors age 65 or older, and some 31% of younger respondents said that religion was very important to them, compared with 55% among seniors. Only 23% of adults under age 30 said that having children was very important to them. Now, one of the reasons that that's important is not only because all of the people that are on Social Security and Medicare are going to need some new people in the workforce, like new future generations of young people, to pay the bills for Social Security, Medicare, and other similar programs. But the reason that's important is the years 25 to 35, those are some of your prime childbearing years, uh, particularly for women, but also for men. I mean, I I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who had, uh, I have one friend. Uh, she had a daughter at 17 or 18. That's certainly a little young. And then she had a son at 40. And she describes how much more difficult it was to have a child at 40 than it is at 17. I know other people, same situation, where your body, especially as a woman, um, at In your early to mid-20s, it's almost like a, a child-rearing machine, a child-birthing machine, whereas once you get over the age of 38, 40, it's very difficult and not only to get pregnant and bring this baby to term, but it leads to a lot of other complications. So if only 23% of adults under the age of 30 say that having children is very important to them, what does that mean? For the rest of society. Uh, To Kevin Williams, a commercial and residential painter in Bend, Oregon. Many of these values are linked. And I agree with him. Williams himself is 33 years old. He said he thought that patriotism is declining as a civic value in tandem with rising individualism. A sense of entitlement among many people and a decline in, in community involvement. I agree with him. Possibly because of people focusing on their own racial or cultural backgrounds rather than what Americans have in common. I think that's true, but I would also add their political backgrounds. I listen to Republicans talk about Democrats. They don't talk about them as if they're neighbors and family members and the people that we have to get along with in order to have a functioning society. They talk about them as if they're the enemy and an enemy that needs to be destroyed. Democrats talk about Republicans the same way. And what Williams told The Wall Street Journal was, quote, I think patriotism encompasses being part of your community and helping other Americans. And I agree with that. I think we are seeing a whole new ball game in America today where it all becomes about me, me, me. I want to do the best I can for me. Make money and do what I want to do. The rest of the country, uh, the rest of the community, be damned. Uh, they, you guys do nothing but frustrate me. If things are, are good for the country, if things are good for my neighborhood, that's great. But... Uh, Overall, I'm much more concerned with my own pocketbook and how my own life is going. More and more people I talk to, they don't really seem to link the quality of their community and the quality of their country with their own quality of life. And I think that's a real problem. Because if everybody feels that way, I mean, think of how far we are away from what John F. Kennedy said in 1961. Ask not what you can do, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Who would run for president on that kind of a platform today? Who would say give more to the country? Democrats uh, want to want focus, for the most part, presidential candidates anyway, not talking about rank-and-file Democrats, but Democratic presidential candidates want, it, want, want elections to be about how much you can get in terms of government checks from the government. Republican presidential candidates want it to be about how much uh, a Republican politician is going to cut your taxes. It's all greed-based. It's just who you're applying to and who you're appealing to. Who would come out and say, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country? So Williams said that as a middle school student at the time of the September 11th attacks, he knew that he wanted to join the military. He said, I just felt that I wanted to do my part to protect my country. And um, he did subsequently serve four years in the Marine Corps. Janet Boyer, a former Pentecostal minister who lives in Pennsylvania, um, to her, patriotism has taken on a political sheen and is no longer important to her. For me, this is what she said, it's a quote. For me, patriotism has turned into right-wing nationalism. You know, I was disappointed to hear that or to read it. I was not surprised. Do you remember the big kerfuffle when they were saying that uh, the American flag itself was a symbol of being a Trump supporter. And very credible people said it. I, I disagreed vehemently with it. But clearly a lot of people feel that way. Um, so I'm curious what you think this portends for the country. I'm curious if you buy into these findings. And I'm curious why you think that's the case. 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 The survey did find... Sharp differences by political party on social issues that have gained uh, prominence. For instance, um, it asked whether society had gone far enough or had gone too far when it comes to businesses taking steps to promote racial and ethnic diversity. Just over half of Republicans said society had gone too far compared with 7 percent of Democrats. Sixty one percent of Democrats said said diversity efforts hadn't gone far enough, compared with 14% of Republicans. Three-quarters of Republicans said society had gone too far in accepting people who are transgender, while 56% of Democrats said society hadn't gone far enough. Overall, 63% of people in the survey said that companies shouldn't take public stands on social and political issues. Uh, give me your take on this, 800-848-9222. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Alex is in California. Hello there, Alex. You're taking my call.
3: Yes, I, I agree with the, uh, with the survey results. Uh, I believe those categories that correspond to binding people together as a single nation, maintaining that nation going forward, are specifically – those categories which are declining in popularity, that's not surprising at all. And this is all, in my opinion, well, not all, but mostly due to excessive immigration of people who don't assimilate into Western culture. And if, as speaking for myself only, my loyalty primarily is not to the nation, but it is to other people who have the same shared Western culture as myself. And that is without regard to whether uh, what race they are or what ethnicity it is. So I promote Western culture. They are mod people. And I hope we can talk about how Westerners can survive in a nation which is no longer going to be Western in about 20 years.
2: All right. Well, I mean, that is an issue that does keep coming up. And thank you, Alex. I'd like to focus for the moment on this particular survey and the difference they've seen. Why so many more people think money is important. And so many fewer people seem to think patriotism, community involvement, faith, and having children are important. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222 six open lines. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon.
4: Yeah, Frankie, I have
5: all the three, uh, three answers. Lay it you on me. Lay frank... it on me, Simon, sure. Okay, lay it on you. Number one is during COVID, everyone was at home <laughs> trading Robin Hoods. The young kids were making a lot of money. And everyone's doing very well. So people just got into it and making a, trying to make a buck. And people are doing very well. But, you know, the year of COVID, the first year and a half, then later things tanked in. So it gave everyone opportunity to get involved in the public market. So that's why I think money is a very big thing by the youngsters. And, you know, they learned quickly. Look, you see GameStop and all that stuff. These are all young kids who took down, who took these companies. And look where we are today. Number two is interface. Talking about the moment of, moment of silence and putting, putting it in all the public schools, bringing God back to the schools like it used to be. A moment of silence that has to be re, put it back into the schools right, but, and all that but stuff. But uh, honestly,
2: Simon, and I want to hear number three and your analysis of that, sure. but when sure. I was going to school, we didn't have any sort of non-denominational prayer in schools. We didn't have any sort of prayer in schools. So why would the results still have been so much higher Back in nineteen ninety eight than they are today when uh the people in nineteen ninety eight they didn't have that kind of institutionalized school prayer either
5: I think that I think the time is now they people really need God in their life now, so what's going on in the world, and I think it's it just you see the shootings and everything what's going on and they they need a belief system and any faith I'm talking about. But um, um, that's one – and the th- the second answer is the population is deteriorating because women are becoming more old-fashioned. There's a lot of opportunities. You have the transgender movement coming up, and that's why there will be a lot, a lot of less kids, a lot of less babies in this world. You know, the women are like – you know, it's old-fashioned thing now getting married. You know, you have – ch- you can't say he, you can't say she. We changed in the last 20 years, Frankie, from 1990. It's a whole different world, my friends it's incredible. And you know, what's going on today. So it's, it's something which we never saw me and you, we were, I'm like in the, I'm 50 years old. We have never seen this kind of change. So um, I think that's, that's also another big issue here. Yeah.
2: Thank you, uh, Simon. I just wonder if there's, if the genie's out of the bottle, is there any way to, I don't know, uh, to make these values important to people again? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two.
6: Eric's in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey Frank. Um, I think at, we're in a time where people may avoid uh, giving information to a pollster. Honestly, I, in two thousand sixteen, um, you know, I, I would avoid them completely, and my mother would give them a piece of her mind because we're Trump Democrats. So she wouldn't. She would be happy to just really, you know, not nothing directed at the pollster, but you know. So there's a lot of American anti-American sentiment going around. So you know. People just are, are going to avoid saying it. I don't think it's as bad as you think, but it's not good, you know.
2: <laughs> All right. So, well, I mean, um, you so you think this is a reflection of people not necessarily answering the questions honestly?
6: Right, right. Because part, in part, we're, we're, we're avoiding the, the posters completely, not even picking up the phone. You know what I mean? So, uh, well, I mean, they're or are they going to tell them what they, what they think they want to hear just to be safe, you know. But in part, I'm sure, because there's a lot more of that going on, I'm sure of it. I know that. All right.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano.
2: This is the Saints Swing for the Crime. This is the other side of midnight. I'm going to get uh, back to your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. My wife and I are uh, getting our taxes done this evening, so I spent a lot of time last night uh, trying to... You know, put all my paperwork together, uh, try to make uh, make lists of all my deductions, all my charitable contributions, all this, all that and uh, all that kind of thing. And sure enough, you know, I had looked I had done a quick glance at what my casino gambling winnings were uh, maybe a week ago, but I didn't add them all up. And I said, no, come on, maybe I, lost. I won at one casino, I lost at another, I won at one, lost at another. Uh, I'm hoping, because obviously you w- don't want any sort of net win so that you don't have to pay taxes on those gambling wins. I'm thinking, okay, maybe I won at that casino, but I probably won at another. <laughs> so yesterday, I, um, I go through all the casinos that I gambled at last year, In New Jersey. And I go back at my win-loss statement. And I found that last year, and this is a number you want to be as little low as possible. Last year, I won $7,309 net in casino gaming. Now, I I don't know where that $7,300 went. I mean, I know where it went. You know, when you're ahead, you're spending money like crazy. You're buying drinks. You're buying dinner. You're out with five people. Oh, I got the check. Oh. and uh, Or, you know, you just use it to buy things or pay bills at the time. But you know why I'm not sure if this is accurate? Because it had me, because I was definitely at Hard Rock a couple of times. More than a couple of times. It had me at, with no net win or loss at Hard Rock last year. And that's not possible, because I definitely played there. I can't imagine that I zeroed out. I have to think I would was ahead or behind at least a couple of bucks. So I'm I'm thinking maybe they didn't take that into account. So, and I figure there's a few hundred dollars worth of, you know, football related losses that I've placed or maybe some other sports bets that I placed last year that I can deduct, but I'm worried now that I'm going to have to pay for all these gambling winnings. You know, I I my dad, who's a very, you know, he's a, 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 a educated in the uh, as an economist. And he would always say you got to put, when you win, you got to put money aside like that. Now, I never would do that because usually for the year, you finish behind. I never had to worry about winning. Now, last year, I happened to finish ahead. I figured, okay, it's an aberration. I'm I'm ahead that year, but that doesn't make up for, you know, all the other years that I've been behind. Not a lot, but, you know, you're behind a little bit. Now, I'm ahead again this year. I may have to start using that Carmine A. Morano philosophy, of whenever you come home from a gambling trip with a thousand, two thousand dollars, whatever it is, you put aside a couple of bucks in term to pay taxes. But um, I'm going to estimate that maybe I had another, I don't know, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars in gambling losses somewhere that weren't reflected in these win loss statements. Because look, th- they only track that if you give them your player card. So I mean I could in theory and and not more than in theory because this does happen. I'll see a, a you know a roulette table and you get a feeling about a number or a color or an odd or whatever and you walk over you you drop a hundred bucks. Maybe you win, maybe you lose, but that's not monitored as part of this. So I'm I'm thinking that at least fifteen hundred to two thousand I could knock off that and then hopefully um, fifty you know the taxes that I have to pay on fifty three hundred dollars won't uh, won't. Whack us too badly, but uh, we'll see we'll see what my accountant has to say uh, when uh, we meet with him tonight uh, so uh we'll see where that goes but if anybody know if anybody has an answer to that about I, about stuff that I can do to minimize my gambling winnings for last year for tax purposes, let me know i mean look I guess how would they know if I estimated it a little low but I don't like to do that um, because one it's bad karma and two the you know why take a chance I mean if there's a win loss statement that has you up x number of dollars why take a chance at saying that you're that you were not ahead right all right 800 848 9222 that's 800 848 9222 talking about you're welcome to call and uh, comment on anything you like but uh, among the things that we're talking about, Talking about is this fascinating story in the Wall Street Journal this week, which shows that so many of these American values, patriotism, religion and um, community involvement, have the thinking that children is important. It's all declined while the only thing that's gone up, the only value that's gone up since 1998 has been money. Curious if you're concerned about this, and I'm curious why you think this is the case. 800 848 Frank is in Queens. Hello, Frank.
7: Hey, Frank. Well, I'm sure one of Biden's 87,000 new IRS agents will get to the bottom of your... Um, I, I, your game, I, am sure. you. I am sure, I am sure. I'm not surprised by the metrics. I do believe the uh, the poll. Uh, I would be curious if you went back 20, 25 years prior to that, let's say the 50s or 60s, what that change was to 1998, Um, you know, my thinking is that a a first-generation American of Irish heritage, my family came here in the 60s, if you look at the demographics of this country 30, 40 years ago, um, they've changed drastically Uh, on two fronts. I think the foreign born population uh, right now is at its highest. And I just think um, if you look at the demographics, how much they've changed. And, and yes, they are more diverse, but with that comes a lot of different, you know, thoughts and and beliefs and value systems. And I, I just don't think... They're all copacetic anymore with each other like they were 40, 50 years ago.
2: Well, hey, look, uh, Frank, demographics certainly have changed in the last uh, 25 years. So, uh, I mean, you may you may have a point there, but I uh, do wonder. uh, And thank you, Frank. In my experience, some of the most patriotic people that I know are immigrants you know i think it was either this week or last week i interviewed john catsmatiti john the guy loves america more than anyone i've ever met he is not only the son of immigrants he's an immigrant himself so i don't i don't buy that and a lot of the uh, asian population i've noticed that they are they came here really because they believe in the values that America is supposed to stand for, many of them fleeing places like China, where those values are not present in society. Additionally, you, my grandfather was, uh, who I was very close to, was an Italian immigrant, and I could tell you all those things that I just mentioned: patriotism, having children, uh, faith—well, maybe not so much faith. He was not the biggest churchgoer in the world, but he went. Those were all very important to him. I mean, he was also concerned about money. But I don't know if he would say that it's very important as a value. I'm not sure. Uh, He's not around here to ask when he was an immigrant. So I don't know if that's it, honestly. I I find some of the most patriotic people, and certainly if we're talking about religion, there's a reason the Catholic Church is so eager to have an uptick in illegal immigration because particularly in border states the people that are feel, filling the pews at catholic churches are all illegal immigrants from mexico from central america from venezuela from cuba so i don't i don't think you're right honestly 808489222 that's 808489222 uh, Gregory is in Ohio. Gregory, you have a solution to my gambling winnings dilemma?
8: Yes. Okay. You can write off $9,999 in gambling losses a year. I can? Yes. Check. When you talk to your accountant during your taxes, you ask him.
2: Well, what? Well, but how can I write off losses that I
8: didn't have? Oh, you can. There's ways. I want... Uh, my lifetime earnings of gambling about seventy thousand dollars. I ain't paid a dime of taxes.
2: Well, I, I hope uh, I hope this phone call is not going to get you in trouble with the IRS.
8: But so, uh, I don't care. Uh, Come get me. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. So um, I live out in the country. They'd have to bring a tank to find me.
2: You know what I wonder? Maybe I can take some losses from twenty twenty, a year that I didn't win. And uh, actually, I think I won that year too. But maybe I could take some losses from twenty nineteen. A year that I didn't win, and use those to offset some of my winnings this year. Can I do that? Uh, as far as... I think
9: it's all. I think it's all you can do, just once a year.
2: No, but uh, but I don't understand why I would be able to write off nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars in losses if I didn't have losses.
8: I'd have to send you an email. I'm not going to tell you over the right. radio. S- send me
2: an email. Send me an email. But okay. I want okay. uh, Yeah, uh, Frank at WABCRadio.com dot com, and that goes for anybody else, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to have the prison cell next to Gregory. What are you in for? Well, I listened to Gregory in Ohio. Ah, we got a whole wing for people like you. There you go. We call it the Buckeye wing. So, um, okay. There you go. Gregory is. Uh, the, 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 They're never going to catch you, <laughs> Frank. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 9222
10: That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 9222 Tony is in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. How you doing, Frank? Uh, we're talking about patriotism. I think the reason people aren't patriotic today is because the government has lied to the people. And I know in my lifetime, uh, they lied about the Gulf of Tonkin, they lied about the domino theory, then uh, the, the world Trade and we had a, a, a little patriotism right after that. But then they lied about the, the uh, weapons of mass destruction. They lied about Afghanistan. We were only going to stay there a little time, and we spent 20 years there. And now in uh, the Ukraine. So how can you uh, expect the American public— to believe when they in patriotism when the, their government is always lying
6: to them.
2: You know that is such a good point, Tony, and I can't really argue with anything that you just said in terms of why people are getting frustrated or I've gotten frustrated with dishonesty on the part of the government. I guess in my brain, um, and maybe uh, this is unique to me. In my brain, I make a distinction between the country and the country that the val and the values that the country is supposed to be about versus liars within the government that are lying to the public. Uh, but you, maybe a lot of people don't. That's a very good point, Tony. Uh, well done, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight. Nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Let's say a little Andrew in Brooklyn. Hello, Andrew. Frank. Good morning. Morning. Uh,
11: so, ten years ago, towards the end of Obama, you saw it just—it just happened almost spontaneously throughout the country. You started seeing a deconstruction. Of the pledge of allegiance in the classrooms, uh, it definitely did not happen during Bush. It didn't happen in the beginning of Obama. I think it was maybe towards the end of his first term, going into his second. It was just like a. It was almost like a. It was like a a trend. Now I'm not a political guy. Uh, I, I did not vote in 16. I hated Hillary. I thought Trump was a buffoon, and uh, by you know by. 2020, I couldn't run fast enough to the polls to vote for him. And, uh, you know, forget the policies. He just, there's an American, there's just a, a real strong American vibe that comes from him. You could tell he loves his country. Regardless what you think of illegal immigration, abortion, all that other stuff, Trump truly loved. His country, you could see it. I mean, it does. You don't even have to be a, a real political. Per- when you look at Joe Biden, you see the polar opposite.
2: Yeah, I, and I, uh, I, I think. Um, and thanks for the call, Andrew. I, I think that would. I, I don't. I don't buy that it's all about the pledge of allegiance, uh, number one, because I don't think that would explain why these numbers have declined across every age group. Why would seniors all of a sudden care less about religion and patriotism and community involvement and more about money? I think that sort of blows blows up the thesis there. Um, And the legal challenges to the Pledge of Allegiance go back long before Obama. I mean, um, I remember in 2004, the Supreme Court ruled in a Pledge of Allegiance case brought by uh, by an atheist. But, you know, that's an interesting thing. I had that on my list for today as well. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow. The 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 there's a proposal in Arizona, I believe, yeah, Arizona, to make the Pledge of Allegiance mandatory for every student in that state, unless you have a note from a parent Excusing you basically from it, but we'll we'll explore that uh, perhaps tomorrow. Uh, David on Twitter says regarding writing off your winnings, just start collecting losing scratch off, t- off tickets wherever you find them and deduct them from your winnings. You know that's interesting. I did not take into account lottery and scratch off tickets. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking I've bought, I don't know, four hundred dollars worth of lottery and scratch off tickets this year. I mean, you don't have to bring them in, right? Unless you get audited, right? So I um, maybe I can take off more than fifteen hundred to two thousand. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but that's that's good advice. I, I wasn't even thinking of the the lot. Let me make a note of that. Lotto and scratch off <laughs> losses. Uh, I don't think I have quite that much. I don't know. I'll have to do some. Uh, I'll have to do some quick mental math. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry.
12: Hi, Frank. Okay. Um, this is a very, very highly reflective poll. I believe it is very accurate, and all three categories are interconnected, economics, religion, and patriotism. Now, having said that, I will tell you that there is one f- reason for for, the, for this poll, for the decline in, in these of those categories of the upsurge of economics, and the word is alienation. And uh, it's very significant that the poll was taken from 1998 because Bill Clinton was president. And the first – okay, let's account for a little bit of a time delay. His first act in office was to get rid of don't ask, don't tell. That was a catastrophic blow to the country. It
2: was to implement don't ask, don't tell.
12: Uh, it was to implement. The, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. You're right. Thank you're right. You. It, it was, it was to implement. Don't ask, don't tell. Uh, that would, what that did basically was raise uh, the issue to the fore, whereas the issue was basically uh, a non-issue before that. It made an issue out of a person's sexual status. That, that, uh, to put that in context, and thank you for the correction, because sure. it shows you how fast time moves on, because an act like that would be seemingly benign today, but it was so catastrophic back then that it lowered the morale so precipitously in this country, okay, that that was the beginning of the decline. Now, successive ali- alienations occurred by uh, by allowing vocal minorities— to change public policy and public thinking, like uh, implementing gay marriage, vocal minorities, all this alienation led people to surrender notions of religion because they saw they saw that it was hopeless, basically, and um, uh, and also patriotism goes hand in hand with religion. Now, the upsurge in economics, when you when you don't have patriotism, you don't have religion, and you see that one percent of the wealth of the country is now in the hands of billionaires, okay, then logically your your what's left? Economics. Your focus is going to be on economics. So alienation is, is the cause. Okay, and Bill well, Clinton started it.
2: All right. Well, uh, thank you, Larry. I'm not sure. Well, look, I mean, it's just a theory. None of us know the answer, right? So it's as good a theory as anything other. I buy alienation and I buy looking inward. I'm not sure that that's directly attributable to don't ask, don't tell, because this this polling includes uh, Democrats as well that are very, very supportive of gay rights for the most part. And I think that was the case back in 1998 as well. So, um, okay, all right, well, again, we're all just uh, spitballing here. 800 this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. midnight.
13: We're in the darkness. The gambler, he broke even. But in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. You got no
2: The great Kenny Rogers. Love no this song, the, the Gambler. Hold. You know, when my wife and I no drive walk. into Atlantic City, there are five Atlantic City. We have a little playlist that we listen to. As we're crossing the threshold, once we pass the Welcome to Atlantic City sign and driving to whichever hotel that we're staying at. So we'll play um, the, the band, Atlantic City. We'll play uh, Robert Goulet, Atlantic City, My Old Friend. We'll play this song, and then we'll usually play It's Pure AC by Dave Damiani. And then if we've hit traffic or we're driving somewhere a little off the beaten path, we will play uh, a fifth song. Uh, sometimes it's uh, that song On the Boardwalk of Atlantic City, which is a, a wonderful throwback um, uh, song uh, back from uh, Days Gone By by Dick Hames, which is a great song. So that's our move. So. Although this version, this version sounds a little different than the uh, standard version that I'm used to hearing, but uh, it's neither here nor there. Well, you asked for it. You have got it. That's right. Uh, Back by popular demand, we have once again recorded a new edition of The Racket Report. My guest this week is best-selling true crime writer and organized crime historian Scott Bernstein. And our focus this week was very interesting. It was on The Mob in Detroit. You have actually a very interesting story about what sparked your interest in the Mafia in general and covering it, specifically the Detroit Mafia. You have a pretty yeah. interesting family history. Tell me about it. Yeah, so uh,
4: I have a lot of family ties into uh, underworld activity in the Detroit area dating back to Prohibition, um, the the most iconic Uh, You know, moniker, you know, in the history of of Detroit and really in the history of the American underworld is the Purple Gang. And uh, they were, you know, the only America's only uh, Jewish mafia, really, uh, a fully uh, vertically integrated, organized crime group. um, And were were totally self-contained, self-sufficient, didn't report to any Italians uh, and really ruled. Um, the Midwest.
2: And it turns out Scott is cousins with the founders of the Purple Gang. So we get into it. I posted the link on my Facebook. Meantime, keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: I got to tell you a story. There's an employee at a family dollar in Arizona. His name is Kevin. Kevin Salas Madrid. He encounters a serial shoplifter inside the store that he works in, in Phoenix. And um, just before 8 p.m. on a Wednesday night, and he warns the suspect to stop stealing and exit the dollar store. The pair then began arguing. And the shoplifter punched Kevin Madrid in the face. Now, what would you expect to happen next? And what would Kevin Madrid be within his rights to do. Matt Blaze, um, if you were Kevin Madrid, what would you what would you do if you were working in a store and you catch a shoplifter? You ask him to leave. That you he argues with you and then punches you in the face.
14: Punch him right back.
2: And then what if he keeps punching?
14: Just keep going. Okay. Now uh, you're fighting. Right. But, but he's shoplifting.
2: Yeah. Right. So you keep going. Yeah. And until when?
14: Until he was knocked out, subdued, done. I mean, I, I don't. know I wouldn't want to kill the guy, mm-hmm. but I definitely, if you're going to hit me, I'm, I'm. It's now self-defense. Yeah, uh, uh,
15: Matt. Uh, Matt, I think that's very reasonable. Kenneth, you agree, disagree with what Matt Blaze just said? Yeah, I give him a shot right in the jaw, and it's also self-defense, right? Because well, he attacked you. I uh, I would agree with that. I think most people would. That if uh, somebody
2: punches you in the face, whether you're an employee of this uh, this store or not, you have every right to respond in kind. Let me tell you what Kevin Salas Madrid did. So, they begin arguing. The shoplifter punches Madrid in the face, at which point the store worker worker, not even the owner, if that makes a difference, the store worker pulls out a gun... And opens fire. He shoots the suspect, the shoplifting suspect, 10 times. And continues to unleash the bullets, at least as reported by Fox 10 Phoenix, continues to unleash the bullets even as the man was on the floor. The victim was rushed to a local hospital with critical injuries. He is still alive. Did not die. Shot 10 times. Rushed to the hospital. Did not die. Now, now that I told you what actually happened, Matt, do you think Kevin Madrid did anything wrong?
14: little excessive.
2: So what do you think the penalty <laughs> should be
14: here? Uh, Intent to kill. I mean, that's attempted murder right right there. Okay,
2: that is precisely what he has been arrested for. Kevin Salas Madrid, an employee at a family dollar store in Arizona, was arrested for shooting a shoplifter who slugged him in the face when the worker asked him to leave. Madrid later told police he didn't see if the man had any weapons, didn't know if the guy was armed, didn't know if he was unarmed. Police reportedly described in a probable cause statement, I can't confirm this, I haven't seen the statement, but police reportedly described in a probable cause statement that Madrid stated, quote, he had made the worst decision of his life. So Madrid has been charged with attempted murder. Now, I agree that he should have been arrested because you can't shoot someone 10 times when they punch you in the face. I, I don't think you can, especially when the threat is over and he's lying on the floor. That being said, now, I've never shot anyone before, but the, there is – when you're in the middle of a fight and you're also firing a weapon – There's a certain amount of adrenaline that plays into – that factors in here. You also – it all happens very, very quickly. I don't think the guy made a concerted decision to say, now that this guy's on the ground, let me keep shooting. I think uh, this was more a reflection of um, his emotions got, got control of him. And he just lost control of himself. I don't th- I mean, there's no evidence that this shoplifter was targeted. And all indications are that um, Kevin Madrid has a pretty good record as a law abiding citizen. Now, maybe this is one reason why people should not necessarily come to work with guns. But that's how it is in Arizona. I'm curious what you think of this case. I I think it's right that he was arrested. But I think a, an attempted murder charge is a little excessive. And again, I'm not minimizing what he did here. You he can't shoot someone ten times for punching you in the face and shoplifting. But I think maybe attempted manslaughter, if that's such a charge. I'm not that familiar with the statutes in Arizona, but I feel like a a lesser charge than attempted than attempted murder is probably warranted here because of the circumstances. I, um, th- this guy was not expecting to get into an almost life-threatening conflict with someone when he got dressed to go to work that day. This is just something that happened. It was not as if this guy was targeted. He didn't know who this person was. And I think an attempted murder charge. I, I don't know. Uh, I didn't see how old Kevin Madrid was. He looks like a young man in his mugshot. I'm going to guess he's in his 20s. But um, I I think for a young man to face the prison sentence for attempted murder for something like this, I don't think that that is necessarily the best case. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. The statement, the police statement added, Kevin explained he was struck and decided to shoot back, but looking back, he realized it was egregious. So evidently, if this is true, what he told the police was that he realized th- what we're all saying was true—that this was
15: excessive. So, Frank, you really don't think it, it was excessive? He shot the guy like no, Sonny I, at the I, toll booth I, I, in I, The Godfather. <laughs> I mean, that if it's different, if he shot him like mm. once or twice. Just to like stop him from attacking him. I didn't but say 10 times. I didn't say it wasn't excessive. I said I think an attempted murder
2: charge is right. excessive. And he is, I just look, he is twenty-four years old. So uh, this um I I think sometimes you just lose control and I don't think that is a defense for shooting someone ten times, but I think maybe a, a charge one backed away from attempted murder is probably The right move here, as far as I'm concerned. But I'd love to know what you think. The victim of the shooting was taken to the hospital in critical condition following the incident. And uh, uh, Madrid arrested, jailed, attempted second degree murder charge and other felony charges on Saturday. Fox News reported that Madrid has been booked into jail on this charge of second degree murder, um, which is basically attempted murder. The National Desk, uh, which is a news publication, they reached out to the Phoenix Police Department to confirm both what charges Madrid currently is facing and the status of the suspected serial shoplifter. I'll also just say, and when my son is old enough, this is a lesson that I hope to impart to him. If you commit a crime, now obviously shoplifting is not assault, but if you commit a crime... You should have an expectation of being injured because look, when you're committing a crime, you are putting yourself in the crosshairs of not only law enforcement, but security officers, local vigilantes, whomever. So again, I I hate to put it this way, but because nobody should be shot for shoplifting. I believe that strongly, but if this guy wasn't shoplifting, he wouldn't have been shot. If this guy hadn't punched Kevin Madrid in the face, he wouldn't have been shot. So, at what had the guy just left the store when Kevin Madrid asked him to, he wouldn't have been shot. I mean, instance after instance, and again, I don't like to blame people that are the victims of crimes, and at this point, the shoplifter went from being the criminal to a victim of a criminal. I don't like to blame people for their own injuries if they're assaulted. But I think this guy bears a significant amount of responsibility here for what happened to him. You, you know, uh, I don't think they do this anymore. I think in New York anyway, you don't even have to call the police when you have a traffic accident. But I, I know in a lot of other states you still do. But what used to what used to happen if you were in a traffic accident, a lot of times the insurance companies will assign blame and they'll say, "All right, well, this they these cars both did the wrong thing here. They're both 50% at fault." Or sometimes they'll say, "Well, okay, this guy's a little bit at fault, but the other guy is mostly at fault. We'll make it 80/20." Those are most of the traffic accidents that I was in over the years. I would say Kevin Madrid is at fault here, and I'm not saying he shouldn't go to prison. Maybe an assault charge, maybe an attempted manslaughter charge. I don't know what the appropriate charge is, but I think second-degree murder, second-degree attempted murder, it strikes me as uh, a bridge too far. What do you think? So, So you're on record, Matt, and Kenneth are saying you think the attempted murder charge is the appropriate one. And you said that even before you knew about this case.
14: Yeah, because if you're shooting somebody not only ten times and shooting them when they're on the ground, you should not be carrying a weapon and and well, and handle okay. in a way that you're losing your emotion. Yeah. Uh, because you should be able to know that you have a weapon on you. You shouldn't be able to. You should not be losing it when somebody punches you in the face. And then excessively keep shooting them. So what you're talking about
2: is um, poor judgment, right? which I agree with. This probably was not the person to be carrying around a weapon um, if he couldn't behave rationally when he needed to use it. That being said, as far as we know, that that was not prohibited in this area in Phoenix, Arizona, to carry this weapon. So it's how he used it that was the problem here for
14: him. Right. I'm not saying that he shouldn't have been able to carry a weapon because if you're allowed to in Arizona, but this particular individual should know his limitations and know, hey, I'm emotional. Right. I might not be able to handle if I get into a situation and I might pull out a gun and kill somebody. Well,
2: I, I would just, and again, I, I think you're right. I think it was good that he was arrested. But I think that there... You don't necessarily know what it's like to be punched in the face by a shoplifter while you're at work until you get punched in the face by a shoplifter while you're at work. I have seen, you know, I went to a public high school in New York City and now the school I went to was not a bad school, but like I think a lot of public high schools, there were more than there. There was more than a fair share of fights from time to time to time. And I have seen occasions where deans or security guards rush to break up a fight with a student. And the student that they're trying to restrain from basically killing their cohort, they punch the dean or the security guard. And I've seen some deans and security guards react in a way that's not the best. They kind of lose, you lose control when you get punched in the face at times. So maybe he shouldn't have been carrying a gun. I'll give you that. I think an attempted murder charge is excessive. What do you think? 800 uh, right, we have a first-timer. We're
16: sorry.
2: Joseph hails from Boston. Hello, Joseph. Welcome to the Hello, program.
17: M- morning, first-time caller. The LFL that was speaking, your mic's a little distorted on the phone, but that's okay. I'm visually impaired. I'd like to bring up two topics. Could I mention this topic and bring up another topic? Be my or do I have guest. To wait a- Be my guest. Thank you. You're very kind. I think it's Well, so how, do I, how
2: do I say you can't bring up a second topic once you tell me you're visually impaired? I mean,
17: I'd look like an ogre if I said no. I know, I know, but that's okay. Uh, uh, the... Um, I think it's not excessive. You don't shoot people 10 times when they're on the ground. I think they're really going to go after this guy. Granted, it's wrong. He sh- maybe he should have had a-, a taser. I don't know whether they carry tasers or, or something to stop him. But you don't see that a lot of people, they make it bad with guns. They grab a gun, boom, 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 boom. You know, that's a uh, so that's my comment on that. I, I think it was way overdone. Maybe second degree murder, but the, uh, I think the department's going to get him on a lot. We'll, yes, we'll, he shouldn't have punched the guy, but ten times when you're on the ground, that's bad. I'm glad he's alive. I hope he survives. So
2: so do yeah. I. Uh, so do I, and I think everybody does. Nobody more so than Kevin Madrid. Thank you, Joseph. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Frank is in Baltimore. Hello, Frank.
18: Hey, how's it going? I like your show. Thank Um, you. So, yeah, so I have guns. And, you know, I think there is a thing to gun safety and knowing how to control yourself and emotions and stuff. But I think in America, you know, too many of the criminals think that they can get away with stuff and not have repercussions or consequences. You know, so if the guy shot him one time or ten, I mean, yes, he's on the ground. You should know when to stop. He's already down. He's subdued. I agree with that part. But criminals got to know, hey, look, we have a Second Amendment in this country, and if you do something, there's consequences. So, you know, and, you know, some people in martial arts and stuff, they could say, well, your fist could be weapons. How did that worker could have thought, hey, he's going to kill him? Well, you didn't I, know what that was going to lead to. You, you, so I think you had a right to defend yourself.
2: Yeah, well, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think um, if you commit a crime, I think you're largely going to be responsible to some extent for your own injuries. I guess what. What I have a tough time with is 10 shots, including once he's on the ground. That's, that's where it gets me. I think if he shot him once, twice, three times, even four times. But once you right. get to 10 shots while the guy's lying on the ground and clearly no longer a threat, I think then it becomes a bit of a different situation. But I still don't think an attempted murder charge is merited here.
18: No, absolutely not. No, right. And that's where the gun safety comes in. You know, you got to know when to stop and control yourself and not have tunnel vision.
2: Right. Well, and it's funny, and thank you, Frank. I appreciate that. Some people that are big Second Amendment people, they and gun owners that I know, they're of the belief that you should have to, some of them, not everybody, but you should have to take a gun safety course prior to getting a license to own a gun. Now, I know that's anathema to many people, but I think that uh, that would maybe obviate some instances like this. I'm not necessarily suggesting that's my view, but I have heard from people that have said that. Certainly, it's a wise thing to do. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848
19: 9222 Corey's in Florida. Hello, Corey. Tomorrow, Frank. Um... Yes, uh, license uh, to own a gun is one thing. Uh, if you're not a felon, to have it in your house. Another thing is to carry it. And also to use deadly force. If this was an elderly man, I, I haven't seen the video. If this was, you know, a this man's life was in danger and he pulled a weapon that's something that it is acceptable. But the first thing that you you're taught is you don't use deadly force to protect property or you don't go straight to deadly force. So yep. if you're punched in the face, you're punched in the face, you know, okay. Call the cops. You don't yep. go and pull your firearm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. Clearly, uh, by his own admission, he handled this poorly. But I don't blame him for responding with force once he's punched in the face. I blame him for shooting 10 times. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm friendly with Bernard Goetz, who uh, e- email. he might be listening right now. And Bernie, if you're listening, you're welcome to call in. But he emails me from time to time. And, you know, he'll even call in to this program from time to time. And after his incident on the subway in New York City 40 years ago, there was, uh, there were quite a few would-be muggers that would no longer pick on or mug a nebbishy white guy on the subway because they would think to themselves, hey, I don't want this guy to, we don't know if this guy's another Bernard Gatz. And maybe... This will say to the next would be shoplifter, Whoa, I don't want to end up shot by some gun toting lunatic in Arizona. Or maybe if you are a shoplifter, if somebody asks you to leave, you'll just leave instead of getting into an argument and punching him in the face. 800 848 9222. Neil's on Staten Island. Hello, Neil.
7: Hey,
2: Frank. You know, this is certainly a
20: uh, forceful behavioral method of correction, Uh, here's a guy who is a criminal, and uh, I don't think he'll be shoplifting again. And uh, I think the guy who shot him maybe uh, should get a place in a psychology book on the way to stop uh, crime. We've got all these uh, professionals, uh, psychologists or whatever, they can't actually make any inroads into that the the recidivism rate is terrible with criminals. And maybe he was just scared enough like this. Uh, Ten shots. Who's to say if ten's too much, or five's too much, or twenty's too much? The guy's still alive. Which goes to show you that uh, it's kind of crazy, right? People in the street, they get shot once and they die. This guy got shot ten times. And maybe the the shots were in places uh, that wouldn't kill him. Who knows? But certainly uh, helping the guy out uh, uh, by changing his behavior, and maybe he'll have a good life from now on. Maybe he'll, he'll, you know, maybe he'll get a job as a radio host or something.
2: Well, hey, the last thing I need is more competition, Neil. I, I see what you're saying, but uh, I think the guy has to face some sort of penalty here. Uh, I think uh, – I, I, look, like I said, he didn't go to work that day and expect to go out and shoot someone or hurt someone. But that's what happened. You know, we're we're punished, we're punished for our actions. And in this case, these actions were excessive. Uh, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800 848 One open line if you want to jump on board, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: This is The Mansion by Manchester Orchestra. I discovered this song uh, just this week. I was going through a list of the 25 best songs you've never heard and different versions of that list. Because that's one of my favorite things. The best movies you've never seen. The best songs you've never heard. The best books you've ever read. um, The best uh, radio talk shows you've never listened to. All sorts of things like that. So I um, said, so let me listen to some of these. And I heard this song. I think it's absolutely terrific. It's by uh, Manchester Orchestra. It's called The Mansion. If you want to uh, ever know what kind of music we're playing on the show, uh, just join our Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, uh, or just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook now, I had to stay a little late yesterday because I uh, had some had some meetings with our bosses, which thankfully went very well, but I came home much later than usual, so I pretty much went right to sleep but I heard from my son's babysitter and then later from my wife that he has not been sleeping. He was up normal time, got up a couple times through the night, and then w- was pretty much refusing to nap. Now he's now sixteen months old, and we currently have him at a two nap a day schedule. He usually will wake up around seven seven thirty, and then he'll take his first nap of the day around um, two hours to two and a half hours later. That's his first nap. And then after he wakes up from that, sometimes the nap's 45 minutes, sometimes it's an hour. Rarely is that nap more than that. After he wakes up from that, he'll take another nap three hours later. But, um, and he did, he t- I put him down when uh, my wife had to take our cat to the veterinarian for one of their many veterinary appointments. And I put him down for a nap while, while they were out. And he went to sleep, slept for about forty-five minutes to an hour, which is his normal nap range. But we've been thinking about converting him from two naps to one, because according to the experts, and we both looked looked into this, it's unclear. You could kind of go either way at this point. As you're sixteen months old, you can either stick with one nap, or you can, meaning stick with two naps, or you can make the transition to one nap. So we're trying to figure out what to do. We'll we'll try again for two naps tomorrow and see how that goes. But um, we'll see. And the other thing is a lot of times when I wake up and this happened right before I left and I hated to leave my wife with this right as I was leaving. The other thing that'll happen is while he's sleeping, he'll wake up crying. He'll wake up and just start crying. And now if I didn't know better, I would think that this is someone who had a bad dream And woke up with a bad dream. But the experts say, if they know, that you're not able, you don't even really start having dreams until you're two years old. So otherwise, I don't know why he would just wake up and start crying. And then I know some people said, I think it was Ellen that, uh, that wrote to me, sometimes babies' bodies just need to get used to the process of waking up throughout the night and going back to sleep. But adults have some experience in doing so, whereas babies don't necessarily. So that's what we're dealing with, is how to readjust, if at all, Carmine's sleep schedule. Could this be a one-nap child after tomorrow? We'll see. 800-840-9222, talking about anything and everything, including this, this story out of Arizona, which has not really become a national story yet. Um, of this guy that worked in the store confronting a shoplifter, telling him to leave. They get into an argument. The shoplifter punches him. The guy who works in the store shoots him 10 times. He's now been charged with attempted murder, and I think it's an excessive charge. The guys in studio here, they think it is warranted. Curious where you come down. And you're welcome to comment on anything else that we've uh, discussed today as well. 800 Eddie is in Nassau County. Hello, Eddie.
20: Hey, good morning, Frank. Hey, look, uh, I don't know all about that case and everything, but I, I heard part of the stories and everything. Everything is always cause and effect. And uh, attitude is the, the most important thing. And that's why I get a little uh, discombobulated about Joe Biden bragging about his ice cream all the time, which is supposed to be good for Alzheimer's. When in actuality, he's been lying to people because it's he, his favorite is not uh, chocolate chip. It's actually a case of tutti frutti.
2: Ah, very funny. Very funny, Eddie. 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David.
1: Yes, if we could get back to the subject at hand, unlike your previous caller. Um, now, I worked in retail for 20 years. And shoplifting was always been an issue, but we were always trained never to confront a shoplifter, to leave it to the people that are trained to deal with them. I'm wondering if um, his company is going to fire this guy, because I don't think I don't remember any company I ever worked for that encouraged people to carry guns while they're working. And there's a liability issue here. While he was firing his 10 round uh, fusillade of bullets. What if another customer had been hit? Oh yeah, absolutely. What if the owner had been hit. That company could be could have faced a huge lawsuit. Well, they I may mean, still. Um,
2: they may still yeah. face it.
1: Right, and, and one last thing. You know, you mentioned Bernard Getz. At least this guy didn't stand over the guy after he shot him ten times and say he didn't look so bad and put another bullet into him, unlike what Bernard Getz did. But. Um, You know, which reminds me, this guy will likely not be charged with this in the end. I bet these charges are going to either be reduced or he's going to be acquitted in trial. Because I can't imagine a jury with what we know so far would actually convict this guy, just like they didn't convict. Uh, gets except for on the gun charge,
2: right? Well, um, in, in the ca- I am very familiar with the with the Gets case because I've I've looked at this and studied this so closely over the years. I would just say, um, just for the sake of of clarity, because that's one of the most popular misconceptions about the case is that um, Daryl Kaby had been shot twice. These men, all four of them, uh, James Ramzor, uh, Barry Allen, Daryl uh, Darrell uh, uh, and Troy Canty. They were all examined by uh, either two or three New York City medical examiners, and all the medical examiners concluded unanimously that none of the men were shot twice. So none of them were shot twice. Now, where that comes from, uh, the fact that the reason everybody thinks that what you just said is true and that they were shot twice is because Bernard Goetz had said that. Uh, When Bernie Goetz turned himself in in New Hampshire on New Year's Eve— Part of his rambling confession was exactly what you just said, that he went over to one of these guys and says, you seem to be doing all right. Here's another and shot him a second time. But the the forensic examination and the medical examiners that examine these four men, it doesn't back that up. Now, he might have said it. And he might have tried to shoot him again, and he might have missed, or he might have um, kind of made that up in his brain somehow and thought that happened, but none of them were shot twice. 800 848 Eugene calling all the way from the Philippines, the land of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Hello, Eugene. Well, good my afternoon to those living in the past. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. What's on your mind?
3: Well, I just wanted to make a comment earlier uh, when you were speaking of why, according to the study that was done, patriotism is going down the tubes. Uh, you see, the way, the way I see it is people have lost a respect for life. When the president of the United States comes out and announces the number one killer of children is from gun violence, he's got his head where it doesn't belong, see, because the number one killer of children is abortion. That's the number one killer.
2: All right. Fair enough, Eugene. Thank you. 800-848-9222. I think they were talking about children once they're born. Not necessarily before they're born. I don't want to get into a hole of whether or not um, an unborn child is alive or not, because that's uh, that's we'll have to do a 20-hour show, and we'll still end up in exactly the same place that we started. 800-848-9222. Uh, that's 800 9222 Al is calling from Ulster County. Hello, Al.
21: Yeah, hey. I think this charge, attempted murder, is 100% correct. You know, somebody mentioned uh, tasers. Uh, Maybe somebody like this should carry a taser if they feel the need to approach uh, somebody who's shoplifting, which, first of all, I don't think he should even approach the guy. But if we're talking tasers or pepper spray, uh, and you mentioned uh, manslaughter. Now, if you pepper spray somebody and they have some kind of crazy allergic reaction and they wind up dying, that's manslaughter because you didn't, you know, want to hurt the guy. Teach him a lesson, maybe... Uh, uh, calm the situation down. A taser, if you tase somebody, that could also have an effect. If somebody could die from a taser, that's manslaughter. But if you pull a gun off your hip and fire at somebody, you're not trying to teach them a lesson. You're trying to kill them.
7: Mm-hmm. You're
21: pulling a gun off your hip and you're trying to kill them. That is murder. Now, if I'm on the street walking, I, I have a, a carry permit. If I'm on the street walking and somebody punches me in the face, I'm not pulling it, but if if this scenario were to happen on the street, this would be murder. So why is it – what's going to change? Because this guy works at a store, and he's going to approach somebody, okay, and he's going to pull his weapon after getting punched in the face. He lost his temper. He had a temper tantrum, and he pulled a weapon. Now, if you're carrying a pistol – I don't know what Arizona's laws are, but in New York, you're held to a higher standard, Okay like other folks are saying you need to learn your limitations okay you need to go through every scenario and mentally prepare yourself for being punched in the face or something like that if you're carrying a weapon and you have to know you cannot pull this weapon unless your life is in danger
2: well look uh, you everything you said al i find very difficult to argue with i um I, i hear you i mean at what point, though, does this guy that punched the person working in the store bear some responsibility for what happened?
21: Oh no, this guy. Listen, this guy obviously shoplifting, punching a guy. In the face. He's a scumbag. No, no doubt about it. Okay, but here,
12: but
21: now also, I have a sixteen-year-old son. It's not maybe one day past an idea that he might want to shoplift a soda. Okay, and if he gets in a verbal confrontation from some uh, an employee who's who's checking people out of the register, and it, it 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 gets heated. Okay, maybe my son punches this guy in the face, and he pulls a gun out and shoots my kid. I'm gonna want this guy charged yeah. with attempted murder. Yeah, He's Al. No doubt.
2: Yeah, I. You make a very strong, uh, very compelling case, Al. Thank you. I um, yeah, I, I find that very difficult to argue with uh, everything he said. I still think an attempted murder charge is excessive. I, I just, I just do. I, I just, um, the guy should absolutely face a penalty, but I think attempted murder is excessive. Uh, Dina is in Yonkers, or as Kenneth calls it, Yokers. Hello, Dina. <laughs>
1: Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, like the sh- the criminal. If he had the gun and shoot the store worker, he would be walking the street right now. That's what I want to say. All
2: he
7: right.
21: wouldn't be charged.
2: Yeah, and, I, and thank <laughs> you, Dina. I don't think that makes it right, right? So I, I just don't don't think that because some other people do bad things and they're not charged with crimes, that that is an, an excuse for not charging everybody. I, I think that's... I think that's a a fallacious argument. John is in Baltimore. Hello, John.
9: Yeah, I want to get on another subject about patriotism.
2: Sure, be my guest, John.
9: All right. The problem why patriotism is going down is the school system do not teach civics and what this country is about. It's an experiment from the Founding Fathers on. We've got our warts, of course, every civilization does. I come from a line from a banana boat from the 1890s. Polish, German, Italian, Irish. Served every war. Yeah, uh,
2: John. When you forget your history, the politicians can make it for you. John, I happen to agree with you. I think uh, civic education, and thanks for the call, John, civic education ought to be a nonpartisan priority. Uh, we have very little in public schools, from what I see, and that ought to be a national priority. And yet, it's not, because. There's no standardized test for it, and you don't have to know civics in order to uh, go to to college and pass a, a test about it. You don't need to know civics to pass the SAT or anything like that. I have said not only should we ramp up civics education, but I think I've said publicly, and we've done whole segments on this, I think you should have to volunteer on a political campaign, any political campaign, before you graduate high school. I think that would teach a lot of very powerful lessons to young people. By the way, I want to uh, just mention again, because we were sort of up against the top of the hour before, that you have to listen to the most recent edition of the Racket Report podcast. My guest is Scott Bernstein, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback on the Racket Report, but people have been complaining that it's been a while since we had a new episode And we have done so many different aspects of organized crime on the Racket Report We've done New York and New Jersey. We've done Kansas City. We've done Las Vegas. But there's all this attention being paid to Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa, in all likelihood, was on the receiving end of a disappearance job by the Detroit mob. So uh, I was pretty eager to talk with Scott Bernstein, who is one of the great authorities— on this subject, and uh, we talked about what piqued his initial interest. I'm going to play this for you again. You have actually a very interesting story about what sparked your interest in the mafia in general and covering it, specifically the Detroit mafia. You have a pretty interesting family history. Tell me about it. Yeah, so uh,
4: I have a lot of family ties into uh, underworld activity in the Detroit area dating back to Prohibition, Um, The the most iconic, uh, you know, moniker, you know, in the history of of Detroit and really in the history of the American underworld is the Purple Gang. And uh, they were, you know, the only America's only uh, Jewish mafia, really, a a fully uh, vertically integrated organized crime group. Um, and were, were totally self-contained, self-sufficient, didn't report to any Italians, uh, and, and really ruled um, the Midwest underworld uh, during, during the Prohibition era, not just Detroit. Uh, and they were founded and run by the four Bernstein brothers, who were my great-grandfather's first cousins.
2: And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And if you want to hear it, I posted a link on my Facebook page at facebook dot com uh, slash morano fan. Uh, that's facebook dot com slash morano fan. You can also just search the Racket Report on any podcast app, uh, or just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com dot com and search the Racket Report. R A C K E T. Uh, but you should subscribe this way. Whenever there's a new episode, you can. Uh, get those episodes downloaded to your phone right away. All right, we're going to continue with your calls in just a minute. Don't even think about changing the channel or going to sleep. Back in a jiffy, this is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: This is Senorita by Vince Staples. Uh, this is also on that list of uh, the best songs that you've never heard. But um, I've, um, I liked it, but it wasn't, um, it was, I didn't like it as much as that song, of The Mansion. But I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. Uh, so I figured, you know, why not? We'll mix it up a little bit. 800 848 That's 800-848-9222. Although I am curious, Matt. Sometimes, like I just submitted that, that question yesterday, that, th- that this on my list of requested music for yesterday, but it got played today. How come sometimes we're able to play the songs right away and other times it takes a week or more before they get in the musical rotation?
14: So the list that I'm looking at right now that this song is on Whatever. There's nothing else left on the list that we have or we had this. Oh, already. I see. Okay, so oh, we had we have, this already. Yes, oh. and the other song we already, the mansion, we also. Oh, very interesting. So if we have the song, then I, can then I, then Got I can it. Play.
2: Okay. Well, that's a very, uh, very sound answer. Okay. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You know, we're spent, We're paying. Um, Pretty close attention to these rules regarding Twitter verification. I mentioned this towards the end of yesterday's show, and I really like Twitter, and I was glad that Elon Musk uh, purchased it, but I am not happy that he's going to make those of us that have a blue check, who are indeed verified, that he's going to make us pay a 7 or $8 monthly charge to keep our blue check. I think it it destroys the whole credibility of the verified system. So I said, fine, I'll go down with the ship like William Shatner. If Shatner's given up his blue check, I'll go with him. And so basically it looks like Twitter was just going to be the reverse of what it is now. All the important people, people like Shatner and me, we will not have blue checks. And all the plebeians in the Twitterverse, they will have blue checks because they're paying the $7 or $8. But... Some news came out yesterday that I am not at all happy with. Elon Musk said, now he changes his mind about this stuff all the time, and I'm hoping that April 1st date that the verified people will start to have to start paying. I, um, I am hoping that it's just a, an elaborate April Fool's joke of some kind because he is a bit of a prankster. But now Musk is saying that starting around April 15th, only verified users will show up in Twitter's recommendation feed, so only verified accounts will appear in Twitter's for you recommendation feed. Musk claims the mood is the only the move is the only realistic way to address advanced AI bot swarms taking over. Musk said um, so he said this was the whole quote. Starting April 15th, only verified accounts will be eligible to be in for you recommendations. This is the only realistic way to address advanced AI bot swarms taking over. It is otherwise a hopeless losing battle. Voting in polls will require verification for the same reason. So it looks like even if you're following me on Twitter, you may not be able to see my tweets. I, what you have to do is go to your phone, and there's two options. And I find this a little annoying as it is, but there's two options when you go to Twitter. It starts out as for you. That's the default. And it brings you the tweets that it thinks that you want to see. And then you have to switch to following. And then it'll bring you all the tweet, Twitter accounts that you're following. So if that if this does happen, that's what you'll have to do if I choose to remain unverified. well. Or become newly unverified, I should say. But I don't like it. I do not like it one bit. Got to tell you. Uh, but you should follow me on Twitter. I think a lot of my tweets are worthwhile. At Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And it's a good way of getting in touch with me. Um, if, you know, I'll see whatever you post on there. And I have open direct messages. So you can always message me on there as well. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 Ninety-two twenty-two. Renee is in Queens. Hello, Renee.
22: Yes. Good evening. A uh, morning, I should say. Um, this is a very touchy situation, and this guy is young. However, he should really be given some anger management classes because ten times is excessive. But his manhood was challenged also by him getting punched in the face.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess uh, the re- the response to ch- getting punched in the face though should not be to shoot someone 10 times.
22: But he's young. I mean, young people, they have different kind of thinking. I mean, it's not like he was 40-something years old. Well, Maybe he was reacting to that, his manhood. Maybe he was in the front of people. I mean, I don't know. But I I hope he can be given maybe probation, and I hope the guy lives. But the guy kind of brought the situation on himself, too, by being a repeater. Exactly.
2: Exactly. That—that's exactly, and uh, that's—that's exactly what I was saying. It sounds like you agree with me that this attempted murder charge is excessive. But I think part of what you're saying, Renee, also goes to Matt Blaze's point, which is maybe if you're not mature enough to handle a gun responsibly, maybe you shouldn't be walking around with one. Thanks, Renee. 9222 Dan is in New Jersey. Hello, Dan. Hi. How you doing? I'm
19: hanging in there.
4: Thanks.
2: Okay. Uh, I
3: just wanted to say, you know, they're leaving out a significant part here. He got punched in the face and he's the provider, whether he's not, he's the person in charge of that store. So therefore it goes from shoplifting to robbery because now he's taking a physical act against the person who's prevented him from shoplifting. So I... they, uh, you know what? I was a cop for 30 years and a detective for 20 of them. I'd have to be ordered to uh, arrest this guy for shooting this guy. Maybe 10 times is excessive, but I don't see any crime committed by him because he was attacked and he responded in kind. We don't know what this well, guy looked no, like. Maybe he'd... he's a little weakling like uh, Bernier Getz was.
2: Yeah, you uh, know. and we don't um, know what the assailant looked like either. Dan, I don't blame him for responding physically. I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't even have a problem if he shot him once, twice. But the guy just kept shooting, even after the guy was on the ground. It looks like there were as many as 15 bullets that he unloaded. What what happened there, Matt? You changed your mind about the back time bed? You were premature and then? Very early. Very early. Okay. And uh, there's no way to automate that, so that's one less thing you have to worry about? Uh, we tried that, and it was a little shaky when when we tried doing All right. It. Okay. All right. Um, w- n- next hour, we're going to be joined by uh, – we're going to have a discussion about multiculturalism in medicine. Is that something that matters? Are going to meet someone who thinks it does? Uh, we'll also talk about uh, a few different health issues, uh, the presidential election, bunch of other things. Those of you that are holding, I'll get to your calls as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You want to be heard, we have uh, one, two, three, four, five open lines, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Until next hour, be sure to help control the pet population and get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Hey, some good news, at least for me. There, they've replenished the fruit supply in the uh, in the kitchen area in the break room, which is just great because I am a I am a fruit fanatic, and I had really I was not intending to eat any more fruit today because I have already had an apple and an orange and. You know, fruit's good for you, but it's uh, it can be, you know, it could be excessive. And I try not to, you know, eat excessively, especially, you know, I'm going to hopefully be in bed in 3 hours, asleep. But I saw the type of apple that they have in the kitchen. Did you see what it was? It is a honey they have honey crisp apples in the kitchen, which is my favorite apple. And I will bet you that Margot Katsimatides who listens to this program on a regular basis, I will bet you that she heard us talking about how my favorite is Honeycrisp apples and uh, had them stock the kitchen with Honeycrisp apples. So what could I do? I had to eat one. My second apple of the day. Although, technically, my other apple is from yesterday. So, so yeah, whatever. So I just had an apple. Delicious. Honeycrisp. If Margot is responsible for that, thank you. If Margot is not responsible for that, thank you to whoever is. Those of you that are holding, I am going to get to you. Very much looking forward to talking with Jeffrey Omar Patrick. He is a professor at uh, New York Medical College School of Medicine and just an interesting guy overall. I just met him for the first time. Uh, We spent all of six seconds uh, conversing. I could already tell this guy's a real character, so I'm looking forward to talking with him. Now, when you were in middle school, what was your favorite book? Matt Blades, what was your favorite book in middle school?
14: The Outsiders.
2: Outsiders,
15: fine choice. Kenneth? Didn't have a favorite book. Why not? Uh, no, no real interest in it. No real interest in reading? Not really. What are you eating? <laughs> what am I eating? Chicken. I'm eating it's got to be chicken. Uh... I'm eating some uh, dark chocolate and uh, tr- nuts trail mix. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so uh, you, it's not one of your gourmet meals that you bring no, from
16: no. home
2: that you and Alex have a competition whose uh, food can be more <laughs> pungent. Um, no. Now, approximately, what is the difference in age between Matt Blaise and you? Uh,
15: approximately. 20. 25 years. 25, 25 years. Yeah.
2: Okay. So we're talking a, um, a little more than... Uh, we're talking a quarter century. That's a real... Difference Now, I, my favorite book, I had two in middle school. One was The Catcher in the Rye, and the second was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's still one of my favorite fictional books. But, you know, what you're interested in over the years changes. And when I was in middle school, I was very interested in reading fiction for fun. And now I read almost for fun nonfiction. And I probably should read more fiction, but I just, I don't. So, there was a fascinating story in The Atlantic by Catherine Marsh, and it was one of those stories that it made me think I was just riveted. And it has to do with why kids aren't falling in love with reading. I think as you just heard from Matt Blaze and Kenneth, Matt is a quarter century older than Kenneth. He had a favorite book in middle school. He read for for pleasure. Kenneth didn't because he's of a different generation, among other factors. I mean, I'm not trying to draw generational. I'm not saying each of these guys is representative of their generation, but to some extent they are. So she explores the reasons or the reason children aren't falling in love with reading and she says hint it's not just the screens so before you call in at 800-848-9222 and saying it's the screen it's the screen it's the screen it's the screen there's more to it than that and i think her theory is a good one and i'm going to invite her on this program to uh, to talk about this actually because i thought this was so interesting and i think this is so important um so the numbers that we're seeing shows that children are not reading for fun. And this is a big problem because to not instill a love of reading in a child, I think is really limiting to them. And one of the things I'm very pleased about with my son is he, he doesn't know how to read yet, but he seems to really enjoy books and sometimes he'll make us read the same book over and over and over again, no matter, uh, no matter how many times he's heard it. And the data suggests that children aren't doing this anymore. So, close reading, um, what her contention is, is that It has to do with the fact that schools have made reading a chore by and large. A survey, for instance, just before the pandemic by the National Assessment of Education Progress showed that the percentages of nine and 13 year olds who said they read daily for fun had dropped by double digits since 1984. Double digits. That's before the pandemic. And uh, Catherine Marsh, who wrote this article, I just shared it if you want to read it, facebook.com slash spoke with educators and librarians about this trend, and they gave many explanations. But one of the most compelling and depressing is rooted in how our school system today teaches kids to relate to books. What the writer writes Catherine Marsh, is what I remember most about reading in childhood was falling in love with characters and stories. I adored Judy Blume's Margaret and Beverly Clearly's Ralph Mouse. In New York, where I was in public elementary school in the early 80s, we did have state assessments that tested reading level and comprehension, but the focus was on reading as many books as possible and engaging emotionally with them as a way to develop the requisite skills. Now... The focus on reading analytically seems to be squashing that organic enjoyment. Critical reading is an important skill, especially for a generation bombarded with information, much of it unreliable or deceptive. But this hyper-focus on analysis comes at a steep price. The love of books and storytelling is being lost. The disregard for story Starts as early as elementary school. Take this requirement from the third grade English language arts common core standard, which is used widely across the country. Quote. Determine the meaning of words and phrases as they are used in a text distinguishing literal from non-literal language. Boy, that's a fun and an easy way to introduce this concept, isn't it? I mean. For anyone that knows children, this is the opposite of engaging. What it looks like the school system today has done is turn reading not into pleasure for children, but into work. Now, when I when I was um, in middle school, I wasn't allowed to watch television before dinner. And if I wanted to do anything other than my homework before dinner... I, I had to read books, which I didn't mind doing because they were books that I really enjoyed and fell in love with and uh, that loved the characters. And it helped me, I think, be a better reader, be a better storyteller, help my vocabulary. I, I think it helped me in untold number of ways. And yet now, as several educators explained to Catherine Marsh in this piece, the advent of accountability laws and policies – including things like Common Core, including things like No Child Left Behind, uh, and the accompanying high-stakes assessments based on standards, has put enormous pressure on instructors to teach to the tests at the expense of best practices. Jennifer Lagarde, who has more than 20 years of experience as a public school teacher and librarian, described how one such practice The class read aloud invariably resulted in kids asking her for comparable titles. But read alouds are now imperiled by the need to make sure that kids have mastered all the standards that await them in evaluation. An even more daunting task since the pandemic. I think her theory has a lot of merit. It makes sense to me. What do you think about this? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. By middle school, not only is there even less time for activities like class read-alouds, but instruction also continues to center heavily on passage analysis. A friend recently told Catherine Marsh that her child's middle school teacher had introduced To Kill a Mockingbird to the class, explaining that they would read it over a number of months and might not have time to finish it. Now, think about that. One of the greatest books of all time. It's great that it's assigned. They're not even going to have time to finish it because they're so busy analyzing it. What's the point? It's like stopping uh, Citizen Kane two-thirds of the way through to spend four months analyzing the cinematography. It's ludicrous. What do you think? 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on other issues uh, if you'd like. Anything and everything is fair game. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in the Queens. Hello,
8: Joe. Hi, Frank. Let me comment on this and your previous uh, thing on the guy in the store. But on on this topic, there's there's two main things. One is any academic uh, setting has a catch-22 you're going for these high grades or fairly high grades, you know, and you are you don't stop and read a fiction book because it's crowding your time and your memory. You're trying to memorize a lot of stuff. You're trying to research a lot of stuff for the classes. So that cuts into it a lot. And the second thing I'd recommend for people like, uh, you know, that are out of school like us, would be audio books for nonfiction, for fiction rather. Check them out because the people that do the voices are incredible and it really helps for, for audio fiction books. You know, they, they're probably actors from like Broadway or SAD. That's good
2: advice. That, yeah. so that's good advice.
8: So that's, and on the other thing, I was thinking... I had a couple of ten speed stolen stolen that represented my pri- my transportation and prized possession. Uh, I don't know if I had caught someone in the act of doing that would I have take if I had a gun would I have shot them I, I don't know Frank. Uh you know and the guy in the store you got to expect shoplifters in the store. You can't be shooting shoplifters. It's any store's going to get shoplifters.
10: Well,
2: I, I, yeah, I mean I agree. Uh so but I just think that um I, I think the guy should be held accountable. I don't want to repeat everything I said. I've said it a right. hundred times now. I just think the charge might be a little excessive. Thank you, Joe. Eight hundred eight four eight, ninety two twenty two. Ina is in Manhattan Island. Hello, Ina.
22: Hello, Mr Um John. Frank. Frank. Yes. Yes reading is is very it's very good and it started early my daughter it and and my daughter started early from nursery school and and she was she become a good reader she got skipped in school twice she went to school i junior high school at twelve years old and went to went to i no she went to high school at twelve years old graduated at 15 and went to college and she's a good reader when when Judy Bloom books comes out anywhere they are I have to get it the first day it comes out she have a collection of Judy bloom especially Pippi Ki talking I used to enjoy that so it, it, she starts very early from nursery school I agree and we we the parents and they were the first first um first first um daycare, not daycare, we call it Ed Start School open in Brooklyn. We were the first one to open it with a congressman's daughter, um Weinstein. She she was the director. All right. Well, Under thank you. Thank trail. you, Ina. My
2: and I think that's great. I think I agree with everything you said. And uh, I have read not all those books, but several when I was a young person as well. I, my concern is not even what books the children are reading, although that's important. My concern is that children are growing up and entering adulthood without a love of reading, without a desire to read. Um, you, you heard Kenneth. It was not of interest to him. So, I mean, and look at Kenneth now. Imagine where he'd be had things turned out a little different for him. So well, that I, he
15: stuck with us. Frank, I lied. Where the Red Fern Grows was probably my favorite book growing up in school.
2: Um, at, I know I've heard of that, but what's that about?
15: The kid grows up and he has, like, two beagles and they're, like, hunting dogs. And then um, one of the dogs dies and, like, it's a whole, it's a whole – thing with the dogs and, like, hunting. It's a good one. We had to read it in, like, seventh grade.
2: Okay. All right. Well, we'll count that. Or, like,
15: do you ever read The Pearl by John Steinbeck?
2: Uh, no, actually, no. I've read a lot of Steinbeck, but no, I had never read this, The Pearl. Pretty good. That was was a good one. Yeah. Uh, cool. uh, that's what the reviewers say. I hadn't read The Pearl, so I don't know. 800 Coming up in just a minute, we're going to talk with Jeffrey Omar Patrick, professor at uh, New York Medical College of Medicine, and um, he's an interesting guy. He studies and teaches multiculturalism in medicine, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about a wide variety of, uh, of subjects when, uh, when he's here. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. 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 All right. Jim's got something else to do. 800 Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne.
23: Good morning, Frank. Um, I am um, a little bit upset about what I heard about the shoplifting in this case. Now, about
24: about what? About what, Marianne? The,
23: shop, the, shop, the shoplifting. Uh-huh. uh Sure. Okay. Uh, my brother was killed by a robber. By whom? In in, in a robbery. In a robbery. robbery Yes. And let me tell you, he not only robbed him, but he put a bullet in his head. And let me tell you, this guy punched this other guy in the face. If he had a gun, he would leave the other one dead. And shoplifting here in New York, one person goes three times to the same store And as long as he doesn't steal in each one $1,000, it's okay. Let me tell you, I believe that things like you're talking about, Arizona, you're going to see worse things like that. People are so fed up. This man, actually, Madrid, right? That was his last name. That's his Spanish name. You know what they teach in the Spanish countries? You don't dare no one to touch your face. Yeah, man. I
2: think that's a good uh, philosophy in every country.
23: Well, but this is the way it is. Now, he doesn't only went to the store to rob, but he wanted to get the best out of the other guy. I agree with what he did, because why I have uh, someone in my family that was killed by a thief. And the same guy that killed my brother, the same week he killed three other Mm. people.
16: Oh, jeez. I'm sorry.
23: My my brother left a widow and a nine-year-old girl. So you must know how I feel. I am prejudiced, uh, but if I were in this guy, Madrid uh, place, I would do the same. But I would make sure that he died.
2: Well, I'm glad this fellow didn't die. Thank you, Marianne. I'm sorry for your... Uh, your loss of your your brother there, but um, you know we'll see how this works out, right? Hopefully, this is an instance where whatever's right, whatever's just comes to be, but appear, apparently there's varying views as to what that is. All right. when we return, we will talk with Jeffrey Omar Patrick. I think you're going to really enjoy our discussion straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
13: When the rhythm gets to rocking on the swing side And the cats condescend to lend an ear When the beatings start to gather around the ringside There's a certain thing they always want to hear 7.20 720 in the books. What's the tune they like the best? When the jive becomes deluxe, what's the number one request?
16: 720 in the books. The The great Ella Fitzgerald
2: here on the other side of midnight. Uh, This is Frank Morano. very, very pleased uh, to be joined by Jeffrey Omar Patrick, a a very distinguished gentleman, a uh, professor or assistant professor at uh, New York Medical College, the School of Medicine. Jeffrey Omar, it's great to see you. Thank you very much. Thank now, you for having me. Now, you. you are dressed well for radio in the middle of the night or the middle of the morning. I'm, I'm dressed well all the time. I, I don't <laughs> doubt that. I want to paint the picture. And, <laughs> Kenneth, do not let him leave here without taking a photo of us together. I wish I was better dressed. <laughs> Had I known you weren't going to be dressed like a schlub like me, I would have worn something. So I want to paint the picture for folks. You're wearing a white-collar um, white collar shirt mm-hmm. with uh, blue and white stripes, which I love. That's my favorite style of shirt. Mm-hmm a bow tie yes and it's it's a red and yellow bow tie <laughs> right. and that's no clip on from what mm-hmm. i could tell it is not you're wearing a vest right and you got uh, this tan sports jacket mm-hmm. and a, a really hip looking kind of uh walking stick there yeah which i that's... thought was just maybe for fashion but you apparently actually need it don't get a motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> lesson learned lesson learned all right now you are an expert in the field of multiculturalism in medicine right? exactly now exactly. and you you teach multiculturalism exactly. in medicine exactly when people think about medicine i think a lot of people take the standard approaches okay someone's sick or someone's injured they need some sort of treatment to get better what role does multiculturalism Play in that. What is multiculturalism in medicine? Why is that something that should be studied?
25: Okay, so. Or taught. So, first thing that you have to realize is that there is a difference between medical care and health care. Okay? So, one of the things that really distinguishes those is that we're taking a look at what is needed to enhance people's preventative health care in order for them not to be sick, right? Mm-hmm. So, what I teach is the fourth year medical students at New York Medical College and the School of Medicine. I teach them how to go beyond prognosis and diagnosis in order to treat the entirety of the patient, not just that medical issue that they have because remember, if we think about the biopsychosocial model i don 't i 'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, let 's pretend <laughs> i 'm not well let's say I am but let 's pretend a couple of our listeners are not uh, catch us up R- anyway right so. You know those; those are the units. A culture is also another part of it too. So you have the bio, the psycho, and and then the, the the physical, the bio social model. This is the three areas that we need to concentrate on really when we're taking care of each patient. You understand? I do. Okay. So um, multiculturalism now is is actually dealing with how we can deal with everyone. And be as inclusive as we can, especially when we're treating people
2: who are in this particular uh, patient care. So just so folks understand what you do um, as as a professor, you yourself are not a medical doctor, but all of your students generally will be. Okay, so,
25: all right. I think I should tell a quick story. Please. Okay, so I was in my house, I was sitting in my living room, and I said to myself, what is the one thing that I can do where I can help as many people as I possibly can? Right. The next day, I get a phone call from a dear colleague of mine, and he says, "Listen, we need an executive director for the New York State Neurological Society, and we want you to." But I didn't have a background in healthcare, so he said, "No, no, no. You'll be fine. You, the way that you do things, your work habits, and." And we we think you'll be ready for being. And, an and by the way, what were you doing professionally at this point in your life? I was in film. Uh huh. I was in, I, as a matter of fact, I did my undergraduate at, at Columbia University in film. Gotcha. Right. So, I was actually thinking about going back to school to get my master's in film when I asked myself that question. So, I get I I actually become a finalist for this position, this executive position executive director position, but um, the position actually went to somebody who was more qualified. But then it dawned on me, like maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing, right? So I decided to apply to the master's program at New York Medical College. Now, while I'm in New York Medical College, I'm thinking about you know people with traumatic brain injury and mm-hmm. how they have to navigate the healthcare, and I'm thinking that's what I'm really going to do. But then when I went in... And I started to know the to notice the disparities in healthcare, not only for African American but for everyone. You understand? Yep. And it was just it was just so troublesome. So I started to read everything I could about multiculturalism, uh, cultural stru- structural humility, uh, any cultural competency, anything I could get my hand on on anything that has to do with multiculturalism. Right. Now we had. Uh, a grand round event at at, uh, New York Medical College at Westchester Medical. And at this grand round, it was on implicit bias. And I happened to be a very, I would say, active participant in the crowd. And at the end of that uh, grand rounds, the vice chancellor for the School of Medicine came up to me and said, you know, we should have a meeting. And so I went to his office, and he asked me if I would revamp the course that they were wishing to teach on Mm -hmm. multiculturalism. And that whole summer was shot for me. I just worked on that, worked on it. I turned it in. He was so enthralled with what I put in that he recommended that I be an instructor of medicine. Wow. Yeah. So that's how I actually became an instructor of medicine. I'm now
2: an assistant professor, but this is my road into this area. Well, that's that's terrific. A couple of things strike me. One is I had seen the story recently that there is a big shortage of black doctors in this country. Apparently only 5.7% of U.S. doctors are black. And just two weeks ago I saw this story. Experts are warning that the shortage of black doctors harms public health. Explain to folks why that's the case. Some people may think, okay, a doctor's a doctor. They can all give you a prescription the same way. Why is this a problem?
25: So, Listen there's a bridge that needs to be gapped between the patients and the providers. Now, when you think about uh, the cultural aspect of, you know, relatability and how the black, not only black doctors, but black and brown doctors are able to relate more towards this sort of patient. And it's very important because the, the black doctors can provide a more cushiony, we'll use that word right they can actually make sure that they're treating the patients who can understand they'll have the cultural competency they'll have the relatability and there it,
2: it, it's it's always good to see one of your own in in an aspect. you know and if i'm a patient and i happen to be a black patient maybe i'm more likely to be candid with a black doctor about a, a particular health issue or a particular behavioral issue than I would uh, a non-black doctor because it really comes down to comfortability. You understand? Sure. And we want
25: people to feel as comfortable as they possibly can. And once we're in the the patient-provider relationship, we have to make sure that we're te- we're taking care of the patients at one hundred percent of what needs to be done, and not to miss anything outside. That's where the the biopsychosocial and cultural aspects really come in, and if there are not enough doctors to treat that population, because remember, there there is a thing uh, that plays a serious role in our society. Racism is real, okay? Racism is something that well, well it's not real, but then it is real, right? Mm-hmm. Because it it is a it is a made up construct, and with that construct, now it says that some people are not getting the the healthcare outcome that they should. And then with that in mind, we have to make sure that we have as many people to be treated as
2: there are people to take care of them. Uh, So uh, take me through the latter part of that again. So I think everybody would agree that a racism in society exists, so, uh, regardless of which group or which person might be racist against which group that exists. So um, are, are you saying when it comes to health care, the, the racism plays a role? Major. How? How exactly? OK, so racism is a tool
25: or a device made up in our society to actually uh, provide privileges and benefit to one specific group over another, right? And with that in mind, we have to make sure that we stay uh, focused on this difference and what it really is. And if no one is is paying attention to the three things really that make up racism and which is discrimination, segregation, and historical trauma. Those three things right there. Now, discrimination is the one that's really most, you know,
2: noticeable. Yeah, right, mm-hmm.
25: because and, and and then now you have the component of implicit bias. Implicit bias now plays another different role because it actually allows people to to be racist and not even know that they're being racist. So, that is what I'm really concentrating on with 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 what I'm studying at Columbia University.
2: Yeah, you are you are studying. You're doing your uh, dissertation. You're pursuing a a doctorate now. You're doing your dissertation, uh, which re- revolving around finding a cure for discrimination. Right. I, I have to say, and um, obviously you you put the whole situation together very well, and in the context of the healthcare system and what you're doing. But I have a tough time seeing how people are in this day and age racist without knowing that they're being racist. How does that how does that work? I mean, if if I um, if I see uh, somebody uh, committing a biased crime, for instance, very easy to see uh, that's uh, that's an example of racism. Someone calling someone a name, Mm -hmm. uh, that's example of racism. Somebody saying, well, uh, blacks aren't as smart as whites. That's why I would never vote for one. That's clearly an example of racism. But how does someone not know they're racist and exhibit racism? Well, there there are
25: implicit bias and microaggression microaggression is 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 done in such a way that it 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 causes harm and people do not really know that it's causing harm for instance you'll see me and 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 you're my academic counselor you're my academic advisor and it's the first time we're meeting and you'll say Jeffrey Omar are you on academic probation <laughs> No, I'm not on academic probation. Why would you even ask me a question like that?
2: You see what I'm saying? I see.
19: I got you. <laughs> right.
2: There's the assumption that you would be on academic probation when there's no basis for it. Okay. I, got, I got exactly what you mean.
25: That's, that's the microaggression, and that's the thing that we're really moving against with this project that I'm working got on. Got it. We're
2: talking with Jeffrey Omar Patrick. He is uh, working on a research dissertation revolving finding a cure for racism. So Discrimination, actually well but, for discrimination okay <laughs> um is discrimination something that can be cured in your view yes it can be
25: now there are some people who say that it can't but i don't think they're they're really looking at the the grand scheme of it because let me tell you something everything that has a beginning has an end and a new beginning so when we take a closer look at discrimination we're actually looking at the unseen acts right the unseen things that are happening that are causing injury it, it doesn't have to be violent verbal assault is just as potent as anything else that you can imagine and and the psychological damage it does really hinders people It it's a roadblock really for certain people because some people might have heard the whole thing about academic probation and that just Rattle their whole world mm-hmm. if they're not as confident as I am. You understand? Sure. So when we're looking at discrimination, we really want to take a closer look at how we train people. Mm-hmm. You understand? Because the training is what's going to really cause people to start looking. Because it takes more than the commitment to equity. Right. It takes more than a commitment. It takes training and it takes us to really take a closer look to recognize implicit bias in ourselves. Like, oh, why did I say that? So when the more you call it out, the more you can actually begin to change what's happening.
2: So uh, obviously I realize there's a whole dissertation worth of work on this um, and it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into a one minute answer. But how do we train People whether it's on a professional level or even at a, a lower academic level, to be part of a discrimination free interaction Okay, so <clears throat> you have to understand the structure that we're in,
25: right, and when it comes to, when it comes to a, a topic such as racism, you have to think about the levels. Right. You got the intrapersonal, the interpersonal, you have the societal, you have the community, and then you have the whole system. The system is now what we want to really take a look at to see how we can implement the training that we want. Now, what kind of training do we want? What I'm working on is I'm working on a facial stimuli program. Where you go to a training and seeing faces, but then you realizing that that face does not match what your brain is actually calculating Mm -hmm. in there. So you can actually start recognizing the implicit bias that you have. And then you can start making an an effort because without the effort, then there's nothing that's going to. It's going to change.
13: All right.
2: So uh, we make an effort to – we do this face exercise. And um, what else needs to be done in the training process to rid the world of discrimination? Okay. So I've also created a behavior change program. The
25: behavior change program is called Be Me Behavior Change Reverse Mirror Protocol. Reverse Mirror. Reverse Mirror is the part where – You see me when you, you see yourself when you see me, Mm -hmm. okay? That's the reverse mirror. We see each other. And then the be me is the brain, energy, be me, and mind, and emotion. Those four components are going to give us another uh, way to really see the behaviors that we need to to utilize in order for us to change the entire system. Because now you do not confront. You don't confront. Discrimination. You don't confront racism. What you do is you counteract it. And in counteracting it now, it allows you to see where we can fill the holes where. Understood.
2: Understood. <laughs> um, let me ask your take on the next presidential election. There is a presidential candidate that I have to tell you prior to our interaction I'd never heard about by the name of Robbie Wells. Right. Who's Robbie Wells? Well, Robbie Wells has just... Uh, declared
25: that he's going to run for presidency, and and a lot of people don't really know him unless you're on TikTok, maybe. Or yeah, some-
2: here is, by the way, one of the a portion of one of the videos that he has uh, put out there on TikTok.
26: I guarantee every American an unconditional basic income of ten thousand dollars a month. There will be no inflation, and even more than that. I guarantee that once we move into the creative society, all debt will be canceled. And of course, there will be no utility bills, no energy bills, and everyone is guaranteed free housing. The creative society is a whole different world built on the value of human life. And because of this, we will quickly fix and resolve all climate issues. I'm the only one who can do it because I have the creative society behind me.
2: Now, I, as I said, i never heard of uh, Robbie Wells before. I think the idea of universal basic income is something a lot of people are familiar right. with because Andrew Yang right. made that a big part right. of his campaign. Right. When we talk about cancellation of debt, uh, when we talk about free housing, when we th- talk about no utility bills, it does sound a little bit uh, too utopian Forfeit. to ever come to fruition uh but um, but who is this person tell us Tell us what his story is so
25: Robbie Wells is actually looking to make a change in America. He wants to do things that I think which are doable. I really think they're doable, especially if we pay attention to what he's really saying. The human value is what's really the most important thing now, I call. I saw Robbie Wells on the internet and I called him Mm -hmm. because I wanted to know what is this really all about. And when I called him, he answered the phone, right? He got on the phone. I told him I was a doctoral candidate from Columbia university. And I wanted to speak to him about some things and the things he had to tell me, I found very interesting, especially when he talks about making us a more unified country. That's the one thing I think we're really missing. And and it falls
2: in line with exactly what I'm trying to do. Well, it's certainly uh, interesting. So I know just in looking him up in preparation for this – he had sought the Constitution Party's nomination for president uh, back in 2012. That's considered pretty much a more of a conservative party. Then he tried to run as a uh, a Democrat f- um, back in 2020. This year he's running as a Indo- as an independent. Mm-hmm. Um where would you say he fits in on the political spectrum? Left, right, center, or is it difficult to define? Well, I think I think I think he's dead center.
25: Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think he's trying to make us see that it's not really democrat or republican we have to start looking elsewhere for what's really important and 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 the left is too far left and the right is too far too far right so i think that he's really concentrating on what he needs to concentrate on especially when it comes to the human experience factor
2: gotcha well one of the things that we've seen in healthcare is uh, and i just saw this story last week is that Medicaid is now going to allow people to um, use Medicaid funds for food, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense because food is medicine and it does play a significant role in your health. Uh, I'm curious if this is something you favor as well and if if there's a cultural dimension to that as well. Well, so the idea of
25: using funds – for food is never a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Okay? So we're on board with that. And you were just talking about fruits right. not too long ago. So I think that people would appreciate such a move especially when it comes to taking care of the
2: nutritional value of who they are. So
25: I'm 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 for it. Yeah.
2: You think we're going to be hearing a lot more from uh, Robbie Wells uh, over the next year or so? I
25: hope so. I hope we can, you know, see exactly where we can get him on the spectrum, and see if we can hear what he what he claims he can do. Let's see how he's really going to do it. Yeah, right? it's
2: it's certainly going to be a very interesting. I'm going to keep an eye on him now. People just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Jeffrey Omar Patrick. Uh, what's next for you it's clear you've got your hands full academically you've got your hands full in terms of uh moving the ball forward uh, in terms of uh, getting people to think about conventional ideas in a different way clear you've uh, got your your hands full with your students but you strike me as a person with a, a lot of energy and and a lot of desire to make change so w- what else is next for you well I'm thinking about
16: politics myself.
25: Really? Really? (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking about politics. I'm I'm not thinking about being president, Uh but I'm definitely thinking— Lucky for Robbie Wells. (laughs) I'm thinking more on the local level because Uh the people in my community, they need to see individuals like me more frequently. Well,
2: yeah. yeah, I think that's great. We, I uh, definitely encourage everybody uh, to be uh, politically active, especially somebody with your um, academic bona fides and your uh, creativity and your approach and zest for life. I want to thank you for coming in studio and thank you for dressing up for the occasion.
25: No problem. You got to come
2: back. Keep us posted, especially if you do take the plunge into politics.
25: <laughs> I will. I will definitely keep you uh, posted. Wonderful. And thanks to Corey for.
2: Oh, yeah, I want to thank my friend uh, Corey Windelspecht for uh, bringing you to my attention. So we're all the beneficiary yet again of uh, Corey Windelspecht's uh, incredible work. If people want to get in touch with you, is there a good way to do that? Um, sure, you can, you can email me.
25: That's probably the best sure. way. Well, yeah, if, you're, uh, if
2: you're comfortable giving your email, go ahead. <laughs> uh,
25: you can email me at jop2105. At tc.columbia.edu. Okay. Just rolls off your tongue, right? (laughs) Give it to me. Give it to folks one more time. Mm JOP 2105 at
2: tc.columbia.edu. All right. Uh, Jeffrey Omar Patrick, a real treat to have you in. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight
16: ahead
2: Bad Case of Loving You, an absolute classic. Somebody, uh, Phil, just emailed me, Frank, there was a song you said you liked. Was the group called something like Manka or Mansion? Can you tell me what the name was? Thank you. Now, Phil's a nice guy, um, so I will repeat this. But um, I will say that the best way to know what songs that we're playing every day is join the Facebook group, even though Algotulo says nobody cares about what songs we play. Uh, the group is um, Manchester Orchestra, and the song is called Manchin. Simple as that. I really, I liked it. So if you liked it as well, feel free to uh, go check it out. So Saturday, I was uh, at my mom's, and I was sifting through some of my old belongings in what was my bedroom. And I still have a lot of stuff there. And she keeps begging me to take it. And I try to take a little bit each time. And uh, uh, my mother is throwing some of it away. And I I, I may have to just rent a storage facility because I have too much stuff. And um, it's stuff that I don't want to get rid of. But anyway, I came across something that I had probably about, I don't know, at least 25 years ago, a little pocket television set. And I used to love these things because um, I used to really enjoy watching the uh, baseball games on them. And uh, I remember if you had to be somewhere, this was before the days of um, of, uh, TiVo and things like that. It's a little Casio pocket TV and you could watch the... I remember one time I used it to watch the World Series because I was out somewhere, and um, they didn't they didn't have it there. So I said, huh. And it got VHF channels and UHF channels. It was really good, really good. All the standard regular channels. I said, let me see if this still works. And I thought that it might not because of the conversion to digital a few years ago. And... The batteries were dead. So I said, let me take it home. I take it home. It's in great shape. It looks pristine. And I put new batteries in. I turn it on. It turns on. But as I feared, it does not get any of the channels. Now, my question for you, because I know we have a lot of listeners to this show, uh, like Tom from the Bronx is the best example that had these old-school analog television sets. Maybe not this Casio LCD pocket TV, but other similar television sets that are now antiquated because of this conversion to digital. My question for you is, is there anything that I can do with this other than use it as a an electronic paperweight? Because it's got a beautiful screen, it has this antenna but all the channels that it would pick up are analog channels which don't currently broadcast in analog can i use this for anything else is there any practical use at all for this now if my wife is listening she's shouting at the radio and she's saying don't tell him don't tell him because she just she's eager for, as eager for me to throw things out at our house as my mom is for, to throw things out at her house but there's got to be something i could use for this use this for is there some sort of plug-in, some sort of adapter that I could put on this little mini television set that will make it functional? Or is there anything else I could use it for? I don't know. eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 I looked on the Internet. I didn't find much. I, I saw that you could buy one on eBay for about $8. So that's not necessarily an indication of the best likelihood of usefulness but I'm thinking there's got to be something. All those cool little electronic components, there's got to be something I could do with this. Any suggestions? Any ideas? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on this or anything else. Uh, Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Charlie, you've got about a minute. It's all yours.
8: Okay, yeah, I want to talk about the shoplifting thing. So I agree with you. I think the charges are excessive. I just want to let people know that in the city of Philadelphia, Wawa will be shutting down, will be permanently closing two stores because of the problems of mass shoplifting, with problems with waves and waves of young teenagers coming in shoplifting, and the business model is just no longer sustainable. They can't make a profit. So this shoplifting is a lot more serious than, than, uh, uh, people think, it is, they think of it as a non-violent, non-serious crime, but, you know, the acceptance of it, and, and particularly prosecutors, not prosecuting like Al and Bragg, if, if there's $950 or less, you, you're it's not, not going to be prosecuted. This is having a terrible effect on the civil society as a whole. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you for taking my call.
2: All right. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, the rest of you that are holding, we'll get to you after the top of the hour. Also, a, uh, a bunch of other interesting things that uh, that we'll try and get to. All right. Um, in the next hour, not only will we have the $1,000 Minute, but a big debate over what a circus is. We'll get into that. We may talk live streaming, police stops. We'll get into that maybe as well. Until then, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. everybody, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marana Well, did you ever go to the circus as a child? Or as an adult, maybe you took a child. I went to the circus once with my father and stepmother. I remember not wanting to go. And not necessarily because I wasn't crazy. I, I just, I don't know. You know, it was one of those things, a lot of times when you're a parent... You try to take your child to all these things that you think they're going to like, and a lot of kids just don't like them. Uh, the circus just wasn't for me. I don't know why. I wasn't afraid of clowns or anything. I, I just maybe I was just in a bad mood that day we went, and I must have been I don't know seven or eight years old. Just wasn't crazy about it. That's the only time I, remember, I can remember going. And um, like a Radio City Music Hall, I saw the 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 Rockettes there as a child. I thought it was. Pretty lame, honestly. I mean, I then went as an adult and appreciated it more, even though it was more a Christmas spectacular more geared for, for children. But I guess maybe I was just a brat. I don't know. The circus is back. But it's been reimagined. So the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus is being revived, and it plans to tour again. Beginning in Ohio later this year. And uh, if um, Gary in Ohio, Gary or Glenn, is not imprisoned for his comments about the IRS, then maybe he can go see them. The intrigue is that the the famed circus will no longer involve animal performers. Instead, the high-octane event will feature high-wire tricks soaring trapeze artists, and bicycles leaping on trampolines. The circus stopped touring about six years ago after nearly 150 years on the road due to declining ticket sales and criticism from animal rights groups. And that criticism was fierce, fierce. And now they've announced in Ohio, they don't have a date yet, but they've announced that they're going to be shows in Columbus. They're going to be doing um, Cleveland. They're going to be doing Cincinnati. All animal-free. I have to say, I if they come back to New York, I would take my son to an animal-free circus, depending on when they get here and how old he is at that point. I think that's great. Well, That was one of the other things that I would think about, When I would encounter young people in my life and I'd toyed with the idea of maybe taking them to the circus. I always did feel that it was mistreatment of animals, the way that they're treated at these circuses and uh, and so forth. Now, meanwhile, I had a friend named May who she worked for the circus and she said some of the animals at the circus were treated better than some of the people. So maybe I'm speaking from an area of naivete but, I don't know, I've heard so many stories about animal mistreatment and animal abuse on the, on the circuit tour that I, I'm glad that this is an animal-free circus. Bob Barker, who is one of my heroes as a broadcaster and an activist and just an incredible guy who I've been lucky enough to interview a few times, and I'd love to have him back on soon, but I have not been able to get in touch with him. He spoke at a press conference in 2011
26: against circuses. The baby is then taken and goes right into training when it's only a few months old. Training to perform the ridiculous tricks that they're going to be forced to perform in their circus. And how do they train them? They have to dominate the animal. How do they dominate the animal? They beat it with clubs, fists, blackjacks, axe handles, golf clubs. They shock it with all sorts of electric devices. They use bullhooks on them. They even deprive them of food and even water in order to make them do these tricks. And they don't stop. Once they've taught them these tricks, they continue to beat them. They beat them throughout their entire lives. They know, never know a, a day that is really pleasurable. And finally, after 20 years, 30, maybe even 40 years, they die. And that day that they die is probably the best day of their lives. Isn't that a horrible thought?
2: That's kind of all I need to hear when it comes to animals and the circus. And I remember feeling that way when he said that back in 2011. And we've had a number of conversations on the air over the years about that. So I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about this animal-free circus. I'm looking forward to seeing it whenever they come to town. Uh, I'm curious if you are as well, and or maybe some of you think that the concerns of people like Bob Barker are overstated. What do you think? 800-848-9222, the animal-free circus. This is the way things are now. PT, uh, Barnum & Bailey Circus, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus, they are the biggest name in circusing. And they're animal-free. You wonder, in the future, are there going to be any circuses that still contain animals? I don't know if there are now. I'm sure there are if we looked. But I think this is a healthy development. What do you think? 800-848-9222. You're also welcome to comment on uh, anything else we've covered thus far. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. What's going
27: on? Yes. Good morning, Frank. Uh, two things about the TV and about the circus. First, mm-hmm. about the TVs. I have two of them. Uh, the one you have is color, right? Yes. Right. And I also have the, an older one, an old Sony uh, Watchman, a black and white version. And unfortunately, Frank, nah, not a damn thing you can do with it. Not a thing. No, they gave away those frequencies. Believe it or not, some of those frequencies are used for 5G. I know that.
2: Um, Yeah. Well, I covered it at the time, but I don't know. I didn't know if it was a way it could be repurposed into.
27: uh, No, no. You know what? Well, you can. And this is going to be to the chagrin of your life. But I made a whole um, bookshelf full of my legacy electronics and stuff that can't be used or just too old or whatever. And people always marvel at it. They look at, oh, look at that. I remember that. So you can you can still use them, but for uh, curios, right? So
2: I, basically, it's just a museum piece at this point.
27: W- w- yeah, 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 and, and and just you like to look at it. Put it somewhere you, where you like to look at. It you doesn't have to be functional. Sometimes you just like, oh, your your memories are there. They're just as real as anything.
2: Yeah, I know, you know, but I'd like to be able to use it for something.
27: There's nothing. I tried, it, uh, you know. Somehow, maybe the cameras I have can be repurposed. And there's nothing you can do. And it really bothered me when they did that because I really liked that little thing. I had it in my backpack. I would, you know, on the, on the subway and on the train, I mean, on the buses, I would watch TV. Now you can't. Yeah. You can.
2: All right. Well.
27: About, about the about circus, yeah, circus. Yeah, please. Yeah. <throat> same thing. I, I felt like you went Even as a kid, I realized snapping whips at, at putty cats isn't exactly the way you should be doing it. But now that they're uh, not having animals... It's going to be fun for a kid, but no one else for a kid. Because it's going to be, it's going to be like an, an old version of the uh, Ed Sullivan show. You know, all these Zambinis jumping around and all that stuff. It's, yeah,
2: well, that's fun to you know, see those trapeze yeah, artists and stuff. Yeah, for a kid, for a kid, yeah. Right, well, I, I mean, the circus is for kids, right?
27: Absolutely. It should be, yeah. All right. I agree. And I think he'll love it. Even at his age, he'll love it.
2: You know, I'm seeing this one article online um, about something called the Raspberry Pi uh, which I don't even know what this is, but you can retrofit a. Uh, I, I, I'm going to send you this article, uh, Rick. E- email me uh, if you have my email. Email me, and I'll send you this article and tell me if this is something maybe we can do.
27: What's your What's your email again? It's
2: Frank Morano at wabcradio.com. I'll, I'll put right, Frank, you on hold. Okay. yeah, at wabcradio.com. Uh, but email me. I want to send you this article. Maybe we can do this project together. Okay, sir. All right. All thank right. you, Rick. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rich is in Manhattan. Hello, Rich. Hello, Frank. Hello.
24: So I remember going to the circus when I was a kid, and it was a lot of fun. And I remember those little flashlights they had, where you 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 popped up the top, and then the it was like red, so it glowed red, and it, it had a lanyard and so forth. But it wasn't sensitive to the plight of the animals. So, uh, you know, I certainly didn't know that they were torturing them. So I am against the animals in the circus. However, I don't understand or see how this is any different than Cirque du Soleil. And will it? Uh. And I've seen Cirque du Soleil several times, and I won't go again, because, frankly, it's like a little boring, and i don 't know if the circus is, Barnum circus is going to be different, but you know the idea of the ringleader or uh, is it called the ringleader right is I, the I main think guy?
2: so I think yeah. so it's been a while
24: yeah. and you know, and you know they had the animals before the circus started, you know, and they were in cages and and again, you know I was a kid i didn 't know that uh you know they were being abused, and so I'm way against um, animal abuse. So I like animal free also, but I don't. I don't really see how it's different than Cirque du Soleil, and so the children may love it, but uh, I, don't think, I don't think I would go. Well, I mean um,
16: the the
2: circus and I guess Cirque du Soleil, it is for children ultimately, isn't it?
24: it? I I guess I don't know. I mean you know it's a it's a show in Las Vegas, Cirque du Soleil. It's been I and I've seen it several times, and but I I'm, I just I, you know I don't know uh, it's not that not as exciting it doesn't sound.
2: All right, well I, yeah. I'm I'm going to check it out at least once out of curiosity if for no other reason.
24: Yeah, I mean I hope they can somehow capture the feeling of what the circus was like because that was much different than what Cirque du Soleil is. I mean Cirque du Soleil is very slick and you know it's well produced and. You know, blah blah blah, but yeah, um, I just remember the, the the kind of the grittiness of the circus and just how much fun it was. So, I hope if they can capture that, I, I would go. I would go even without the animals.
0: Uh, all
2: right,
24: Although, yeah. Uh, I did love those big elephants. That was fun.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're fun fun to look at, but you you hate to see them being I, tortured this way. Yeah,
24: right? this this is so unacceptable. I I'm I'm a big animal rights activist guy, Rich. Uh, so.
2: Thank you. I appreciate the call. 800-848-9222. I saw Cirque du Soleil maybe about 30, no, not quite that long ago. Maybe about 25 years ago, around then. It was a little high concept for me. And then, you know, there was a time, and I still really love IMAX films, but there was a time in my life where I was really into going to the IMAX theater in Manhattan, and back then there was really only one And they had a very limited selections of films that were playing in IMAX. And I ended up seeing Cirque du Soleil, uh, uh, Journey of Man, which was an IMAX movie, but it was basically just Cirque du Soleil. I found that pretty boring as well. I'm sure it was a masterful piece of filmmaking and um, masterful use of technology and editing. But it was was just – to me, it wasn't entertaining. It was way – it was no, there was no
14: story that I could follow from what I remember. Cirque du Soleil and the circus are two different things. I mean, well, totally. Uh, so uh, I guess there's so somewhat high flying, daredevil type acts in Cirque du Soleil. But they had themes, like there would be a Cirque du Soleil show for a year that would tour around, and then they'd do a different Cirque du Soleil <laughs> show. So now, you're a Cirque du Soleil fan? I went I went because it was the Michael Jackson Cirque du Soleil. Oh. So I did go to that one. And I, the same thing, like, it was cool, but it was like, uh, it was all right. I wasn't like blown away by it. Um, I did go to the circus a few times as a kid. And what I remembered, I went as a kid, and then I did go as an adult. And when I went as a kid, what I remembered was that there was a lot going on at one time. Right. Like they had the three rings, there was an act going on in this ring, there was another act in that ring. Well, and it, that's true. it yeah. was the ring master. They called the ring leader. It's the ringmaster. master. Ring master. That controlled me. the entire circus. But then when I went as an adult, it was sort of like more of just a show. Like there was one act at a time. Uh-huh. And then they had. Now, what made you go as an adult? I, um At the time, I was dating someone that had a, a uh, child. So, you took a child? So, we took them, yeah. Uh. And I just remember, like, this, it seemed so much more fun as a kid. Interesting. Because Interesting. you had, I also you had the lights and everybody would twirl the lights around on the string. And now, when I went, and this is like 20 years ago when I went as an adult, they had, like, you buy the light and it's a fan and it just automatically spins around. And I'm like, well, that wasn't no fun. And yeah, kind of fun. The fun was swinging the whole <laughs> right. thing around. Right. So I, I'm doing some research
2: online about the differences between Cirque du Soleil versus the traditional circus. And it says that the lasting allure of the traditional circus came down to three factors, the tent, the clowns and the classic acrobatic acts such as the wheelman and short stunts. So Cirque du Soleil kept the clowns but shifted their humor from slapstick to a more enchanting, sophisticated style. And as you point out, there's all these different musical interpretations of Cirque du Soleil. I I remember for a while, I don't know what's playing in Vegas now, which is where Cirque du Soleil is big. I don't know what's playing there now, but for a while, the Beatles' Cirque du Soleil was a, a big thing. Uh, it's still... I don't know. It's not really my thing. I, I didn't go to a tent. I went to Madison Square Garden. <laughs> there was no I think tent. I did also. I think I did also. <laughs> Every time I went. But I'm also still picturing a tent Um, somehow. That's like a carnival, maybe. Nah, or, okay. I think I went to Madison like Square that. Garden. But I, went to Madison I was Square. underwhelmed, even at eight years old. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tommy is on Staten Island. Hello, Tommy.
28: Hi, Frank. I'm sorry for any background news. I'm driving to Manhattan in my car. I, I got three topics now. One is that I have the original Casio handheld color TV. I got it in the 70s, I believe it was, late 70s maybe. And uh, I couldn't get that thing to work for anything. I keep it also, and I keep it on a shelf with some books. But I wish if you had an article that I could try to get this to work, it'd be great.
2: Well, the other thing I want. Yeah, I can't vouch for. I can't vouch for the veracity of this one article that I just discovered. I'm not even clear what Raspberry pie is, uh, but um, but I I don't know. I'm going to. uh, I'll send it to you. If you email me, I'll send it to you.
28: I appreciate that. And the other thing, two things are. I went to Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas about. I'm going to guess around. I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe. I'm uh, possibly. And or uh, maybe t- fifteen, twenty years ago, but I'm being honest with you <laughs> me and my friend uh, late Louis Lucchesi, very famous guy from Brooklyn. We fell asleep. We and our wives fell asleep during the show because I didn't understand it. And uh, believe me, I'm I'm more intelligent than many people believe, but I just couldn't understand it. I didn't get it. Yeah, I I think we're in the same boat.
2: They were in the same boat. I saw the live production one time, and either I fell asleep or I wanted to fall asleep, and then I saw this movie that I just described, and it's the same situation.
28: (laughs) Right. They were diving into water, and I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't know how they got through the stage and it became a pool, and that was pretty cool. You know, the, the the special effects and all. But in 1978, I went to Ringland Brothers at, the, at the Madison Square Garden. My girlfriend, who became my wife, got tickets uh, for the circus for some reason. She thought it would be a good birthday gift, I think. And uh, we kind of had a great time. And when I liked it, only because I think she liked it more, but when my children grew up, uh, where they were around uh, young, young kids, less than 10 years old, my two daughters,
12: there was a Clyde
28: Bailey circus that traveled from uh, uh, city to city. And they wound up in a place in Marine Park, Brooklyn. And I took my daughters, and they got to ride on an elephant's back, and they got to uh, hold animal uh, tiger cubs in their hands, and I thought that was amazing. Tiger cubs in my kids' hands, like, it was fantastic. And uh, uh, something similar to the uh, uh, place we have upstate New York once a year, you know. And I thought that was amazing. But to find out later on how abused they were, my youngest daughter became an advocate now. You know, she's against horses being pulling carriages and and all that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, you don't think about that. But you know, let's face it, uh, 200 years ago, somebody said, hey, how can we make money? If I capture one of these animals, they would want to see one close up. Right,
2: right. Yeah, it's a that, great you know? point. Great points all, Tommy. Uh, thank you. And um, I'll, we'll investigate this Raspberry Pi uh, situation. Thank you. Apparently, the Raspberry Pi is basically a mini computer. And at least one person, I can't speak to this, but it's $35 for this computer. And... um. It's the size of a deck of cards, and apparently you can hook it up into one of these Casio TVs, and it can act as a monitor for this mini computer somehow. So I'll look into it. I don't know. I just saw one quick article in my search to find something that these televisions can be used for. Steve is on Long Island. Hello, Steve.
9: Good morning, Frank. How are you? I've been listening uh, in and out because of the area that I'm in. My, my AM reception is not that great. Well, are you in and Suffolk
2: you or, or Nassau? No, I'm in Suffolk. Okay. Well, try us on Talk Radio 107.1, WLIR. You know what? I have to be a little further east to pick it
9: up. I'm okay. a, kind of a western Suffolk right fair enough, now.
1: Fair enough.
19: Fair enough.
2: Uh,
9: but go I, ahead. I heard you, you talking about, I heard you talking about Ringling Brothers, and um, I, I had very good memories of Ringling Brothers when I was a kid. We used to go almost every year. But the thing that um, I wanted to uh, mention is that I remember talking to an animal trainer, it was years ago, and um, he conveyed to me that the training methods that uh, we put animals through, in the long run, animals want to be trained because since they can't speak to us, by being trained, it's a way for them to communicate like a dog when he gives his paw. He can't say he wants to be petted. He can't say he wants a cookie. And by putting his paw out, that's his way of communicating with, with its owner. And I think that can be extrapolated to the tigers and the elephants. Uh Somebody decided years ago to suggest these animals are being abused. And uh, I, I just find it hard to believe that the tactics that they used to train these animals, they would use in the live shows. Uh, but the sentiment seems to be that these are tortured animals. They were caged up. Uh, if you domesticate an animal, this is only an opinion. I feel if you domesticate an animal early enough and its uh in its life, they don't know the wildlife. They don't know the um. They they don't know what it is to be free and have to fend for themselves. Right. Uh, so uh, again, the you know the people that uh, put Ringling Brothers out of business. I'm sure those animals were loved because again, this is what I I remember from being told years ago that just being trained. And that's their way to communicate with you. They roll over and uh, they lay on, on their backs they want you to rub their bellies because most four-legged animals can't rub their bellies so and, and they're fed pretty well so um, again in summation I would just say that I never felt and I never believe to this day that these animals were abused. Uh, it's a training method and, uh, and, and you know as far as the, the animals benefit, them being trained is uh, – I'm going in a circle here. But uh, I don't really think there's much abuse because they do it right in front of a, a live
2: well, audience. Yeah, and, uh, I, I hear that, uh, Steve. I, I, and look, my friend May, when she worked with the circus, she she said she didn't see any evidence of abuse. But it, it, whether there was abuse or not – and I, I will defer to Bob Barker, and I think there was uh, – huh. the the people – weren't buying tickets to it. So it was, wasn't really a viable business as it was constituted. I'm eager to see how this new animal-free circus goes over, this Circus 2.0. Thank you, Steve. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul.
28: Good morning, Frank. Morning. I'm I'm on my way to work as usual. Uh, do you remember, I, I mean, I, the last time I was at Ringling Brothers, remember they came out, they had... The goat with the bones sticking out of their head, they were calling it a unicorn. Do you remember that? No,
2: that wasn't Ringling Brothers. That was um, was Ripley's Believe It or Not.
28: I remember seeing it at Madison Square Garden. I'm pretty sure it was Ringling Brothers. Uh, Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right.
2: Okay. Uh, Because
28: that was... it, It started coming out then about the abuse with the animals. Unfortunately, the way they would train the animals was abusive. And... I don't know if every circus did, but because of the bad publicity, like you like you said, people just stopped buying right. tickets. They didn't want exactly. to take a chance, you know, of being a person all saying, Oh, I go to the circus. They didn't want to say, Well, you go to the circus, you like watching animals being abused. That's what happened. Yeah, and
2: you are correct, by the way. It was Ringling Brothers, and it was around nineteen eighty four that they used goats yeah. for unicorns. You're absolutely right. <laughs> So, uh, thank you, Paul, for that. Yeah, uh, this is interesting. And they marketed it as they're they're the only unicorns in the world. They're priceless. They're all males, and I believe they're brothers. Uh, that's what the Ringling Brothers vice president assured when he was telling everyone it was the real deal. Even Mayor Ed Koch entered the ring when they were in New York, saying that while he believes in unicorn, the unicorns this doesn't mean they exist. And the, he's right. Everything Paul said was correct. The ASPCA went into attack mode, urging a ban of the show and demanding the truth behind those hefty horns. 800 848 George is in Manhattan. Hello.
10: Hi, Frank. How's everything?
2: Um, it's just
13: fine, thanks.
10: Okay, regarding the Casio you mentioned, right? Now, of course... You know that you can get something like that, even a lot better, more uh, sophisticated, for about $80 to $100, and it'll be very useful to you as a secondary TV. Now, how you could uh, make use of that instead of discarding it or placing on a mantle as a decor piece, you know, what you could do uh, first and foremost to give me the model number. Is it a small, like four inches? If you measure from corner to corner of the screen, it's four inches roughly. Uh, is that that yes. small? Yes.
2: Yes, that's right.
10: Okay, okay, and it's Casio, made in where? Probably Japan at that time. I don't know. I'd have and,
2: to. I don't have it in front of right. me. I'd have to check.
10: Okay, and if it's Japan, pretty good, you know. Now, it's analog. So in the nineties we switched from analog to digital, right? Which means that you have to get a converter in order to digitize an analog TV. So what you can do is provide me tomorrow, I'll call you back, the model number, and then I can go on from there to see what features it has in terms of connectors. Uh, And uh, of course, it's gonna cost you, I just did a little research by purchasing the parts from Amazon or preferably Amazon, you get new items versus eBay They could be used, you know, uh, or a Walmart, etc. cetera. Uh, it would be about 30 $40 uh, dollars totally because you would also need some sort of a, a TV uh, connector uh, like an antenna so over the air uh, you can get uh, a variety of channels. For free right. It's right like
2: like people do now with their digital antennas
10: right but let me ask you one thing uh, you're in Staten Island right
2: when last seen yes
10: okay so it would depend on how many channels you'd get on uh, you uh, on the site uh, when you uh, go to the uh, uppermost part of your building and look around and see where Empire State Building is. All right, and yeah. then you face yeah. uh, the antenna that direction, and you'll get a variety of channels depending on right. the proximity. Well. Now, get the model number, please. Got it. I uh, will
2: do, do that, George. Do you have it now? No, I don't have it now. Thank you, George. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. In fact, that's as good a time as any. Maybe some of you want to win enough money to buy one of those new. Handheld television sets, which I'm looking on Amazon, they don't have the same kind of charm that my old school handheld television set had. But if you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, we're going to give you an opportunity to play the $1,000 Minute. And if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 minutes, no, no, excuse me, 60 seconds, you will be... A thousand dollars richer. 800 848 9222 7th caller straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
2: singing groove me this is the other side of midnight we'll continue with your calls in a moment but first let's see if we can't win someone some money
0: the other side of midnight presents it's the thousand dollar minute Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
2: Murano.
16: Thomas is in
2: Farmingdale. Hello, Thomas. Thomas? Yes, hello. Oh, boy, this is going to be an adventure, I can already tell. Thomas? (laughs) Hello? Yes, hello, hello, hello. Yes. Yes. Thomas, have you heard this contest before?
21: No. Okay. I, I just heard of it now on the radio. I called and
2: All right. Okay. Uh, So basically, I am going to ask you a series of 10 trivia questions, and you're going to have 60 seconds to get them all correct. You get them all correct. You win $1,000. The timer will begin after I ask you the first question. Then a lot of them are not difficult questions, so... If an answer seems obvious, it is. And then if you get an answer right, I'm just going to move on to the next question, okay? Okay. All right. Name a type of alcohol. Rum. What religion does Pope Francis belong to? Catholic. What European country is currently experiencing protests because of the government's decision to raise the retirement age? Israel. Ah uh, no, I'm sorry. It is uh it is France, uh Thomas, but uh I'm going to put you on hold. Give your information to uh, to Kenneth and um and he will take it. We didn't even get to the James Madison question for today. Uh that's the theme by the way. If you're wondering what the answer to question 4 is all week, it's always James Madison. That's the that's the answer this week. So, um come armed with a knowledge that the answer will be James Madison. It was his birthday on March 16th, and we didn't really celebrate it in any way. So I figured the least we could do is throw him a week here and there in terms of other side of midnight uh, responses. All right. If you want to comment on uh, anything we have covered thus far, you're welcome to 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. A couple of things uh, that I want to get to. First, a lot of you may remember, especially a lot of our listeners on uh, WCBM in Baltimore. We told you about the guy that got freed, Adnan Syed, from the Serial podcast. Basically, they reopened his murder conviction because of this podcast, Serial. It was one of the most popular podcasts at the time of all time. Well, now they vacated his murder conviction. And now Adnan Syed's murder conviction has been reinstated uh, following an opinion released by the Maryland Court of Appeals. The appellate court of Maryland ruled that the state's law provides victims with the right to prior notice of the hearing on a motion to vacate convictions. And that right was violated in the case of the family of Hey Min Lee, Syed's ex-girlfriend and high school classmate, who died more than 20 years ago. So because they didn't tell the family about it, the family couldn't have been at the hearing, and that's apparently a violation of the law. The court ruled that giving her brother only one business day before the hearing was insufficient time to allow him, who lives in California, to attend the hearing in person. So because the circuit court violated Mr. Lee's right to notice of and his right to attend the hearing... This court has the power, and according to them, the obligation to remedy those violations, and uh, they're they're reinstating this murder conviction. Now he's still out of of prison. They're not taking him back into custody. I'm assuming what will happen here is they'll just do another one of these, another one of these hearings. Only this time there will be the the proper notice this time around. That's what I'm assuming will occur here. We'll see where that goes. Uh, A couple of people celebrating birthdays today. We want to say happy birthday to Brendan Gleeson, the actor that uh, this year he was, I think, nominated. If not, I know the movie itself was nominated. But he was the really crazy character in, well, they're all crazy in that picture, in The Banshees of Inna I don't want to say what he does that is his defining characteristic because maybe some of you know already. But if you haven't seen the film, I think uh, it's it's worth seeing. It has some redeeming value. And uh, he's the star of that film. He's 68 today. But what I first saw him in was a film called The Comey Rule where he plays Donald Trump. And even though he's an Irish actor, he speaks with a heavy Irish brogue. He does a good job playing Trump. I think he makes him a little too evil-looking and sounding, a little too sinister. But by and large, I think he's got him down, and I think it's a pretty good, pretty good Trump that he does in that film, uh, the Comey rule or the miniseries. And uh, he's no longer alive, but uh, Major League Baseball Hall of Fame pitcher Cy Young was born today in 1867. You know, there are so many people out there that don't even realize that Cy Young was actually a person. They think that he was just an award, and they have no idea that that was actually named for a person. And it was on this day in 1959 that the classic film Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, and Jack Lemmon premiered in New York City. That's on Broadway now. And um, that's my mom's favorite uh, movie. I thought about maybe trying to get her tickets to the musical for, for her birthday. I think she might like it. But I haven't heard much in the way of objective reviews in terms of if it's worth seeing or not. i got to ask my Broadway show guru, Mike Gallagher, because he's pretty pretty good with that. All right. Mike is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Mike, what's on your mind?
21: Hey, how you doing, uh, Frank? I was... You know, you talk about the circus. When I was a kid, my first circus was at the Old Garden. the went up in the 50s.
24: Oh, yeah. And they
21: used to have they used to have a, used to walk a, a you know, uh, down below, and you, it was called the Freak Show, but you saw all these guys, you know, swallowing swords and, you know, the bearded lady and all. And a few years ago, we were at the Allentown Fair, and they used to have, like, a freak show there, too, when I was a kid. And I'm sitting there, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, I used to pay a dollar. To see the tattoo lady. Now I see thousands of tattoos all over women. Now, <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable, you know what I mean? It's like it's now it's a freak show in itself, well, no matter where you go, what you see. You
2: know, uh, uh, thank so you. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks, Mike, appreciate it. 800 848 Lisa is in Connecticut. Hello, Lisa.
29: Hey, it's Lisa again. Remember from Connecticut. We uh, were talking about pizza the other day with Frank Sinatra. Yes, I remember it vividly. <laughs> yes. So I wanted to um, – I actually uh, was listening to your show all night for my my drive from New York to Connecticut. Oh, you poor thing. And,
2: you should get an award you know, or something.
29: No, the, <laughs> well, um, actually, I'm Lisa Pure, the recording artist, by the way, and I'm a huge fan of your show. But that, besides that, okay, I wanted to comment about what you were talking about, the pistol permit situation. So early in this show, you were saying something about how they have to have special training. They should have special training. Well, I said some people
2: have suggested that. Some people have suggested
29: that. Yes, okay, that. so how right. about this? When I was 18, I got my fiscal perm- permit in the state of Connecticut, right? I don't have it any longer because I went back and forth to New York and I let it go, okay? But when I did, and it's a, a current state law in Connecticut that you have to go through a special training course before you could actually get your permit to carry. You're
1: kidding. So there's a whole... Yeah, yeah a I, I knew some states
2: had this. I didn't realize course. Connecticut was one.
29: Connecticut, you have to go through a special course. You have to have recommendations and everything from people that actually have, um, you know, they, they have to re- recommend you to have a pistol permit. So there's a, an intense type of a situation where you have training and everything that you have to go through in, in the state of Connecticut. Connecticut, Connecticut, to carry.
2: And and so, so did you have to? I, did you have to go through it? Yes. And and did yeah. you find it helpful?
29: Absolutely.
15: Yeah. So, do you Absolutely. think that's a good law?
29: Absolutely. Interesting. I think everybody should go through training. And I don't. I, I I think that maybe you know, like you were saying about this uh, the 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 long the, the the weapons and everything. Maybe they should have some sort of situation where the police that they should maybe. I, I don't know. It would be a lot of funding, but I would hope. That maybe the like the special arms that they're dealing with the the AR 15s and this and that. I wonder if there's something that they could do, maybe to check up on these people and do sort of like a wellness check from time to time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I wonder if the maybe they should do something like that. Yeah, you know what I mean? I
2: think um, I think that's a challenge just because there's there's so many there's of them.
29: There's not enough funding and right. there's not enough police. You know, unfortunately, but you know I you know I'm all for. The, the right to carry, obviously, you know, it's the right to, to defend ourselves and everything. But, you know, the, it's really great that the state of Connecticut has that, that you have to go through that special force. Yeah, well, I'm glad anything. to
2: hear from you that you found it uh, helpful and maybe yeah, that'll help other absolutely. states inform their decisions. Now, uh, Lisa, yeah. you were you were an MTV dancer back in the day.
29: Yes, okay. So I had a Billboard number one single called Lost with Roger Sanchez. Right. And I that, see that was back in two thousand and five. I'm still doing records and everything. I'm, I'm putting out a couple of new singles um together right now with my producers over in uh Europe and, and Russia actually. Um she's against the war, by the way. <laughs> right. Well I think a lot of folks <laughs> yeah. are sure. Yeah, of course. But um yeah, so I'm still doing music and everything, but I'm a huge fan of your show. I'm still doing that. And then I'm also into Real estate and um, and other things. I'm a notary public in the state of New York, and I've been doing things with real estate as well. So,
2: well, that's great. But, uh, well, let us know. know when your um, your new single comes out. We'll be sure to play it on oh, the on the radio. Hold okay.
29: On. Oh my God! I'll send it to you. If, uh, I, I heard your email earlier, so I'll send it over. I'm a huge fan, and then I also wanted to tell you that P.T. Barnum, when my family came over from Slovakia. They, my grandparents came over from Slovakia, and they uh, they started Pajero's Luncheonette. It was downtown Bridgeport, and they had the best hot dogs then, and ended up being Pajero's restaurant, right? And right across the street was where P. T. Barnum started the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Ah, and see so, how it all comes full circle. That's wild. There, that's wild. That's wild. Hey,
2: so why so do you go back and forth uh, between? Why do you go back and forth between New York and Connecticut so much? Is it because you perform in New York and you live? In Connecticut? Well,
29: I actually do some real estate. I'm actually I'm a, a, a title closer and bank attorney closer in the state of New York and a notary public. And in the state of New York, you could be a notary and sub in as buyer's attorney, seller's attorneys, and bank attorneys on sellers' on the transactions for real estate work. If they, you know, you can't legally advise anybody. But you can actually go notarize the documents and explain people how to do their mortgages and blah, blah, blah. And so I have some business out there with the real estate industry. And then I also do my music. And, of course, I go back and forth with my music career and and everything. And my parents are both 81 over here. Wow, that's great. So I go back and forth. Take care of, you know, all right.
2: Well, well Lisa, stay in touch. Keep us posted and, um,
29: oh, and so call much, again. Okay? I love you so
2: Thanks, Lisa. That's nice. Right. I appreciate you listening thank you. to all four all right. hours. See, that's my kind of listener. She's a little famous, not too famous, and she listens to all four hours, which we like. Uh, that's very nice. And uh, yeah, we'll play her song when it comes out. Why not? And uh, I, I've heard some of her other music. It's pretty good. 800 848 22 And you know what she said about that gun safety course was interesting. And I'm starting to think that that whole incident in Arizona that we were talking about earlier might have been prevented had Arizona had a similar law. I don't know. 800 848 We're going to do 15 seconds of fame Coming up in uh, in a few minutes. And uh, what else did I have to mention? Oh, it's a lot to get into right now. I'm going to save that for tomorrow. There's a... Uh, yeah, I'll save that for tomorrow. I don't want to start... I don't want to start... An, open a can of worms for a subject that I can't go into with the uh, proper depth necessary. But uh, we'll we'll get into that uh, tomorrow. I will tell you what was going on in our house. So I mentioned my, our one cat, Bathsheba had her consultation with her new oncologist today. My wife took her. That went well. The oncologist mentioned that Bathsheba is a very good girl, which everybody that meets Bathsheba will say because she is. But our other cat, Melchizedek, you know he's getting on in years. He doesn't have many teeth left. And he's got diabetes, or as uh, Wilford Brimley would say, diabetes. So he, he vomits a lot. A lot of times when I get up in the morning on Saturday and Sunday and I let my wife still sleep, uh, there'll be little mounds of vomit on the rug, right? And so I'll clean him up, and it, it almost looks just like undigested cat food because he doesn't have many teeth to even chew the, the food, so he almost just swallows it whole. Plus, you know, he's he's a little sickly. He's diabetic. He's got other things. So, um, you know, he's got some stomach issues. So yesterday, he's vomiting again while my wife and I and Carmine are trying to have dinner. My wife, yeah, and um, my wife goes and cleans it up. A few minutes later, he's vomiting again. And it was an unusual amount of time for him to be vomiting, an unusual amount of frequency, meaning. And then I see a little later that I got my wife some flowers last week, and I see he's eating the flowers that I got her, which are on our kitchen table. And I think what might be happening is that he's eating these flowers all day, the the, the green part and the flowery part, and it's causing him to get sick and vomit. So now we have moved the flowers and I am hoping that uh, will mitigate the vomiting issue, at least for the time being. We will see. Uh, I'll keep you posted, believe me. All right, 15 seconds of fame in a moment. You can be heard on any issue for 15 seconds, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.
0: midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Frank Marano.
2: no longer with us, but has given us this song to remember him by. Before we get to 15 Seconds of Fame, let me just mention, maybe no one cares, and I'm betting that there's a good chance you don't. The one thing that irks me, I hate it when people send me an email to my email address, but they send it as a text message. So when you send, like, I'll get a text message from 917 Eight, you know, five 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 zero one one zero, let's say, right? And I have to essentially open an attachment to the email to see what this person wants to say. And inevitably, it's one sentence, two sentence. And because I guess they want to send me a running commentary, and this is not one person, it's just one person I'm looking at right now. But people do this to me all the time. Why do you do this? If you want to email me, Use an email address. If you want to send me an SMS text message, text message me eight one six eight Morano. My number eight one six eight M O R A N L. Without further ado, it's time to, for you to be heard for fifteen seconds.
0: The other side of midnight. This is fifteen seconds of fame.
26: Russell.
9: Hey, that idiot, Mike of Myrtle Beach and Lake George, who calls in with different names and voices, should leave it to Steve of Manhattan. During the 15 seconds, he should go back to picking up litter on the train tracks.
10: Raji. As warmongers, Curtis, remember, please, besides Gordon Gango Chang, Curtis, please remember Rita Cosby, who daily proclaims we should give Ukraine anything and everything they want and more.
20: Neil. A belated shout out to Ella Metzger, who throughout my surgery and recovery kept sending me emails of encouragement and well wishes. They certainly made a difference. Fred. Hey, Frank. Sally Madison used to go to the psychist and feed the elephants bonbons. Boy, did she pack
24: that dime. (laughs) E. Frank.
28: Yes, uh, Francesco. If any kind of animals can read, write, or do arithmetic, then we should hire more canine uh, police dogs and feline uh, police
16: cats.
10: Roger. You know, David from the Bronx made an interesting suggestion to Dominic Carter about treating guns and gun licenses like with an automobile, with all sorts of liability insurance, maybe renewals, exams ahead of time, like, the, like Lisa in Connecticut, et cetera. Tommy.
17: Scissor morons Sizzle And Larry.
10: Any show that censors
12: its callers and can't stand the truth is not a show. Rita Cosby's show is not a show. Oh,
2: do not bash the other hosts. Rita is a lovely person, and uh, she's uh, accomplished a great deal in broadcasting. The last thing she needs is a lecture from you on what makes a show a show. Okay, A lot of shows don't even take calls.
0: This guy's a moron. from
2: listeners. So don't do not pick on Rita Cosby. she's one of the nicest people in broadcasting. Frank Murano, good day.